friends and fellow Buffy lovers, and welcome to our podcast, where we discuss each episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in detail, focusing on digging deep into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing. I'm Leah. I'm Sarah. I'm Tabby. And this is Becoming Buffy. And welcome to the long-anticipated part one finale <laughs> of season two. I was about to say finale, and I was like, oh, not quite. But, I mean, it's technically the finale. It's the beginning of the finale. <laughs> very, very, very good episode. Yeah, this is... Oh, it's becoming part one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is This is one of those episodes that is why you start a podcast about Buffy. Is to talk about episodes yeah. like this. It's it's because we have all the buildup and all the stuff that we talked about in the past, you know, 20, this is the 21st, 20 episodes of the season, including, you know, season one. It's all built up to this episode. And so it just makes it super rewarding to talk about it. And I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous. Like, there's a lot to talk about in this episode. Like, from the part one and part two, part one to me both of them are equally like amazing for very different reasons, but part one always feels like an hour and a half like movie. I feel like so much happens. Mm-hmm. They give you so much in the first one. And the second one is like the payoff, but in like a good way. Like you kind of, it like executes into see, to the second part. And the second one seems so much faster. But like this one, I, I was like still watching and still writing down notes. And I was like, we're not done yet. Like there's still so much. Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of agree with you, Tabs, about it being like a little bit scary and like being nervous about it because there's so much pressure, I think, put on these episodes too because these are everybody's favorite episodes. So it feels like you have to like do it justice and like do it really well. And so hopefully we will make it interesting. We will tell you things you haven't heard of before. We will have good commentary. Um, But yeah. Yeah, dang. I didn't even think about the fact that I was scared. I was like, wow, it's going to be so fun. And now I think about the fact that, like, so many people are, like, so in love with these episodes that it's like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. All right. Well, just as a reminder to all of you guys, this is our spoiler-free section. We will hopefully not be spoiling anything for you guys. But um, just as a reminder, too, we are going to be not having a spoiler section for this episode next week. Next week, we will be covering the spoiler-free section for Becoming Part 2 the week after that will be our live recording of the spoiler section for both Becoming 1 and 2. I know. I'm actually – I'm more nervous for that, honestly, than I am for this one. (laughs) I know. Unfortunately, I feel like a lot of you guys are going to kind of have your reality shattered on um, the behind the scenes of this podcast. When I say that – casual is being generous (laughs) i mean it (laughs) it's true half the time i can only see the top half of their heads because currently tabby (laughs) is laying down right now i can see is her eyes and leah half the time is on her phone but no we make it happen i'm definitely looking at notes yeah sure sure sure, she says (laughs) (laughs) no but we're excited we're excited to see some of you guys face to face we're excited to talk with you guys um, and just so you know, that will be on August 21st, which is a Saturday. We're going to be recording at 11.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is – I'm doing the math in my head – 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
The recording program we're going to be using is called Riverside. They have a mobile app called riverside.fm that you guys can download if you're wanting to use your phones while you're talking with us, or you guys can just use your computers. We'll be posting the guest link to our Instagram and Facebook pages next week. Um, if you guys don't have a social media platform like that, you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com and we can send that out to you. Um, also, we are referring to the live uh, spoiler uh, episode as Tabby's and Mai's birthday party. No, we're not. <laughs> oh, my we word. Saying this. Please send gifts in the form of Venmo cash. <laughs> my at is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's like two weeks. I after promise your everything. Everything you said. It's still during Leo season. Oh my gosh! Whatever. Such a Leo to be like <laughs> at that birthday point, it'll be like three weeks after. <laughs> no, for real. I don't know much about any like astrological sign. I just know that Leos are very self-absorbed sometimes. So that sounds like <laughs> and something they're the best. And, and, and they're the best. Sign and three ever. of my sisters are Leo. Leos. So I'm in yeah. trouble, man. I'm the sweet Pisces yeah. over here. Pisces are really emotional. See, I don't think I'm very emotional, but no, you are. Oh, I am. Because you're, you're a Pisces. Oh, okay. <laughs> fulfilling prophecy. Whatever. Sarah's like, I'm not emotional. <laughs> like the, the recording cuts off. Starts crying. <laughs> no, I feel you, Sarah. For for a Leo, I'm definitely not as self-absorbed as a typical Leo. But do Sarah's like do, I disagree? But do Leos know they're self-absorbed? Is the question? I'm. Yeah. I. I it's can generally sit here and say I am not self-absorbed. <laughs> so comment down below what your astrological sign. Oh my are, gosh! Uh, <laughs> okay, so August twenty-first, guys, mark your calendars. It's gonna be fun. I'm so excited. We have several things that we're gonna talk about. It's gonna be spoilers, and it's probably gonna turn into talking about the entire show just in general. Probably is my guess, but I'm excited. It'll be fun to see some of you guys face to face, or at least chat with you if you're not comfortable coming on the recording. Um, we will ha definitely have a chat and talk with you and stuff. So yeah, good to look forward to that. All right, let's jump into this because there's a lot to talk about, and it's becoming part one. All right, so becoming part one. Season 2, Episode 21, written and directed by Joss Whedon, of course, aired May 12th, 1998. I actually wrote down that the music in this episode is so beautiful. Like, it really, like, Christoph Beck really just put all of his efforts into the music in this episode because in suspenseful moments, the music just elevated it so much more. Yeah, and I think it's been... Um, it's been a couple episodes since he's been here. I think he was in I Only Have Eyes for You. Um, he wasn't in Go Fish for sure. So I think that like it's been a couple episodes, but anytime he's in, it's just it makes such a huge difference and it really helps tell the story. So David Greenwalt, who's one of the producers for the show, uh said the best kinds of villains are the ones you know and love. And I think that's definitely true for this episode. This episode actually won an Emmy for Outstanding Music Composition for a series with the dramatic underscore um, because of Christoph Beck, which I think completely, completely earned this. It's just especially that final moment as Buffy's like coming around the corner at the very end in slow motion and like the music playing with the voiceover. Music just plays such a critical and vital role in storytelling. And it's amazing how like 
sometimes you like obviously there's so many elements in this episode that make it a great episode. It's the writing, it's the acting, it's the storytelling, it's just the build up that's led to this moment. Um and but I think that like music sometimes gets the short end of the stick because it's so subtle and it it's just in the background, but I think it just in this uh in this episode it just really elevates it. And I will say too, I feel like because Buffy just kind of wasn't appreciated in its time, but also like was never like to the su- success that it deserves. At least in my opinion, hearing that it wins any awards for anything, I'm always like, oh, finally, like you deserved more. But hearing that it earned anything, I'm like, oh, it just makes me happy. Yeah. I mean, Buffy should have won way more awards. We all know this. But the fact that it won this award, you're like, somebody was like, oh, oh. This is good enough for like it's good enough for us to overlook the fact that it's a supernatural show. Like we can't help but give it an award, you know? Like it's just that good. It, which is sad, but at the same time you're like, okay, at least it won something. Joss said about this episode and in part two as well, he said these episodes chart the main points of the Buffy slash Angel relationship in all its difficulty and romance. He says creating 17th century Ireland was hugely exciting for everyone because it was the first time that they ever actually shot on an actual studio lot. Up until then, they'd been shooting on their own like little like Buffy lot, which was basically just a bunch of warehouses in Southern California. But this was the first time they went to the lot. And fun fact, that lot is actually, you can find it still at Universal, and it's right next to the same set that's used for Hemery, the school that Buffy goes to in her flashbacks. And the building that is used for Buffy's school is the same building that's used for the clock tower in Back to the Future. Isn't that cool? The clock tower? Yeah. It's the same building. Really? It's the same set. It's the side of it? It's the same what set. The heck? Yeah. Dang. I need to go back and see that. No, I had heard of that. Liar. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> you little butthead. Can't even say it with a straight face. Shh. They can't know. They won't know. I'm like, yeah, I knew all of that. <laughs> Joss continues on to say, he says, Buffy has always had to deal with a certain level of isolation because of her responsibility that she can't really tell anybody except her close friends about. But we really wanted to strip away all of her support systems, her friends, her school, her family, her lover, and say, what do you have left? In a situation like that, what is there that you have when you have everything taken away from you? Which I just – I really love that they had the guts to do that. And I think you you legitimately feel that by the time this episode closes, you're like, oh my gosh, like the fate of all the Scoobies and what's going to happen next. It's just – this episode is – brilliant because I think in a lot of ways this episode could have easily have been the season finale and I think most shows would have done that but it's just the precursor it just sets up the next episode which ends up being just so satisfying well and I I, to kind of add on to that I think that it's crazy when you watch this episode and you're like wow that was such a good episode and then you think about it and you're like but the next episode is even better. Yeah. And I feel like so often when I watch two-parter episodes, um, with the exception of Avatar The Last Airbender, but like most of the time when I watch two-parters, it's very like the first half seems a little drawn out or the second half seems a little drawn out. And so it's like one is better than the other because one was kind of given all the like dialogue whereas the other one was given all the action like it doesn't seem like both are able to be fascinating episodes on their own um and so to see a part one and eventually you guys will see two 
to be both so fascinating and so captivating on their own and then even more powerful as a unit is just really impressive. Yeah, and not all of Buffy's part ones have been super great. Like, What's My Line part one was enjoyable to watch, but it's a much slower paced episode. And usually when you have a part one, part two, part one is just setting up part two. And so it's not meant to be like super like, whoa, all this stuff is happening. But this episode is so jam-packed with good moments all on its own that it's super enjoyable to watch. And I don't feel like, obviously it's half an arc. We're not going to see everything until season two, but I feel like enough happens in this episode where I'm not going to be just like, oh, crap, I can't talk about that till next week. Like, I feel like there's enough to talk about and there's enough to, like, watch, you know? I also feel like if they're going to give us, like, a backstory to a character, usually you'll just focus on one for one episode, but I feel like we got fed so much that I feel like seeing multiple flashbacks of Angel and different, like times in his life and then you get drusilla and then you get buffy and you're sitting here being like oh my gosh there's so much for me to digest just in flashbacks itself and then you see like i mean we'll talk about it later but like i don't know the um contrast between different characters and the reason why they introduce new characters and or like showing the past and the present it's just there's so much going on but it fits and so it works but usually i'd be like on overload be like my goodness this is so much and i think tabby that's such a good point because i think that we have talked about before how there are some episodes that are so rewarding for fans who watch the shows and i feel like this episode as its own, is an amazing episode. But watching it as a fan who has been watching since season one, you feel way more rewarded because you're like, oh, I finally get the backstory of Angel. Mm-hmm. Like, I finally get to yep. see it. I finally get to see yep. more of Drusilla. I finally get to see, like, more of Darla. Like, you, like, you just feel so rewarded. Even seeing someone like Darla, who you haven't seen since the first few episodes in season one, it's like, as a fan and a longtime viewer you're getting rewarded and you're getting fed. And so it's like even uh, Kendra, it's like, oh my gosh, we haven't seen Kendra. Then Kendra comes back. Like it just feels so rewarding and it really makes the episode so captivating to watch. Are those who like have seen the Buffy movie, which wasn't that great, but there were a lot of like um, tie-ins to that in this one. And if you haven't seen the movie, then it kind of gives some context of like what, Buffy had to go through in the very beginning. You don't see the in-betweens of that year, but you see like her first being called. We know that she had a watcher in LA and you kind of see a glimpse of him. And so there's just so much that happens in this episode, but like they do it so well timing wise. I feel like there was a lot that I was watching, but it didn't feel like it was too much. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, I wrote, it's like finishing a puzzle. We finally get to see how it all connects, where previously we'd only seen bits and pieces together. I mean, we'd heard about Darla turning Angel in the episode Angel. We knew Angel tortured and turned Drew and lied to me. We hear about Angel's curse in Angel and then surprise and innocence. And then we finally get to see where Buffy was called to. I mean, this is one of those unusual shows where like – Buffy already comes knowing about her powers and stuff. There's no origin story. Like that we finally get to see Buffy's origin story, but we get to see it through the eyes of somebody else, which is especially cool. Like the way they did it is just very fresh. Um, and I really appreciated it. 
It's just, it's like all the pieces are in place and we have all the information we need. Like that's what this episode needed to do is give us information. And it could have done it in a very boring way, but it did it in an epic way that feels fresh and new. And it prepares us for becoming part two. It's the perfect show to this season's tell. Like the the season has told us things in appropriate ways. And now it's showing us all that, but it's told us it so well that we almost feel like we didn't need it to be shown to us, but it's super rewarding to watch it, you know? So I just, I don't know. I really, really love this episode. I might, might love this episode more than part two, but I don't know. It's kind of a toss up. It's very hard. Um, The themes of this episode are about choices and responses to what happens to us in life and taking responsibility for our own destiny no matter what happens to us. The episode is really all about Drusilla, Angelus, and Buffy, mainly Buffy and Angel. Um, and Drew's kind of in there just to kind of mirror Buffy and also kind of show us how evil Angelus was at one point. The past and the present are very well connected in this episode. The scenes with Drusilla begging to be pure connect with the scenes of Drew being evil and talking about eating someone. The scenes with Angel being cursed with a soul connect to the gang finding the restoration spell. And then Angel seeing Buffy for the first time connects to him watching Buffy in present day. It's just, it's just very, very well done. Through the flashbacks of Angel's life, we have it intertwined with both Drusilla and Buffy, and we see that all major life events happen to Angel without his choice. One could argue um, that being a vampire was his choice, but like, well, I guess we'll get there. But I'd argue he didn't know that he was actually going to become a vampire when he was with Darla initially. I think it's very, very interesting that the only exception is Angel choosing to go to Sunnydale and choosing to help Buffy. That is the first major choice and decision that Angel actually makes that we see in his life for himself. Up until now, things have just kind of happened to Angel and he's had to respond to them. Him choosing to help Buffy is the first major life choice that he makes, and it's a good one. And I think that's really interesting and really poignant. And I think Joss is trying to like tell us the story of things are going to happen to you in life. I mean. Whistler's monologue at the very end, but you're still responsible for how you respond and react to it, which I think is just really beautiful. So let's talk about David Boreanaz for a quick second before we jump in. I feel like we haven't actually like gotten to talk about him yet. And I was like, oh my gosh, like we haven't talked about David Boreanaz yet. Like we've talked about like most everybody else, but not him. So this is his, this is definitely his episode to shine for sure. I think that we've been seeing David Boreanaz as an actor be challenged more and more as the show is going on. And I really feel like this episode really challenges him because he acts as Angelus, Angel, and then he acts as like pre-current Angel where he's like kind of still Angel but very different to who he is. Like there's just, oh, and Liam. So it's like we see so many different versions of him. And he's truly believable with every single one of them. Yeah, he does a very good job. With the exception of his crappy Irish accent, which I know everybody rags on and we have to, you know, mention – it's our obligatory mention about his crappy Irish accent. The thing is, though, it doesn't super – like, it isn't distracting to me because the dialogue is so well written and David is acting so well for me. I'm just kind of like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm I'm able to look past it. Same with Kendra's accent, too. Like, I think Kendra's accent's a little bit worse. But for me – it doesn't detract from the character and it doesn't really pull me out of the story very much, which that is saying a lot because those are not great accents, but this episode is amazing. So we will look past it. 
I feel like I'm very forgiving on accents if the acting is good and the story is good. Yeah. I don't really think it's like worth it to put so much energy into like bashing someone for something that they that's hard to do well. You know, like even if you do something passable, like people can still crap on it. The casting of David Boreanaz. Um, he was actually making a living parking cars, painting houses, and handing out towels in sports cars. Um, the casting director, Marcy Shulman, recalls this at the time. She says, the breakdown said in the scripts, we needed to find the most gorgeous, mysterious, fantastic, the most incredible man on the face of the earth. She says, I think I saw every guy in town. It was the day before shooting, and a friend of mine called me and said, you know, there's this guy that lives on my street who walks his dog every day, and I don't know what he does, but he has all the things you're describing. <laughs> and so she said, the minute he walked in the room, I wrote down in my notes, this is the guy. And that's from Slayers and Vampires. It's funny because apparently he made his mark on a several people. Like Joss was kind of like, eh, I don't know if this is the guy that I want. But he says every woman in the room was a puddle when he was like talking. They initially were going to have Angel come in on a motorcycle. So when David walked in the room, he grabbed a chair and kind of like spun it around and sat on it like he was going to drive a, Dang, a motorcycle. Miss opportunity. <laughs> I know. And Joss said all the girls were just like, puddles. <laughs> but it's oh, funny literally. too because um Christine Sutherland who plays Joyce actually was coming in that day. I forget if she was auditioning or if she was reading something, but she was in the same room with all these guys that were auditioning for Angel and David Boreanaz was in that room as well and she says he stuck out to her and she was like this this that's the guy and sure enough like you know when they were in the same episode together on Angel, she was like, "Yep, that's the guy." You know, it's so odd. I've heard that so many times with people like um, Jenna Fisher and um, John Krasinski. Yes. Sorry. I, I was forgetting his first name for some reason. I wanted to say Jim Krasinski and I was like, that's <laughs> um, But like on their podcast, they talked about how both of them read through with several different actors and they just like clicked with each other even though they did a good job with other people and they both walked out and when they got calls separately that they had gotten the character they both asked did jenna get it did john get it yeah because they just were like if if they got it then like i want to be this character because i like really felt a connection with that actor mm -hmm. and that's just nuts i've heard that with several other people too where they're like They'll read with a certain actor or actress and then it'll just like click for them and they'll just know that they're going to get the part and they end up getting it. That's just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because Christine, I don't think she even really had a conversation with David. She just saw him in this room yeah. and was like, he stuck out to her, you know? Dang, it's a good thing he ended up being a good actor. Right? No, it's so true. Because, I mean, could you imagine if they were like, oh, my gosh, like, he, he looks the part. He's perfect. He has a really good presence. You get him in one episode and he's god-awful. Could you imagine? Oh, it would have changed the course of the show. And the thing was is that Angel was not supposed to be a reoccurring character. And they hadn't quite nailed down, like, who he was exactly and all this stuff. And so he was just basically supposed to be a pretty face there for maybe the first couple of episodes. And, you know, maybe they'd kill him off. I don't know what their plan was. But David and Sarah ended up clicking and he ended up being a better actor than they thought he was. And so because of it, then they started giving him meteor roles such as Angelus. I mean, yeah, it's just – it's crazy. 
Sarah Lemelman, the author of It's About Power, talks about how the character of Angel helped popularize the new conception of a sympathetic vampire. As following the end of Buffy, both television and the movies saw a rise in the depiction of a vampire, which seems to have become a staple of the vampire genre, a sympathetic vampire. Edward Cullen, Bill Compton from True Blood, and Stefan Salvatore, all three characters are essentially the same type of vampire refusing to feed on humans and wanting to help rather than hurt humanity. It's the tortured soul. Yes, <laughs> literally. Yeah, it's true. Well, Stefan is like a carbon copy or what – I don't know. I like Stefan. A lot of people crap on him. I think that he's like – tries to be like Angel. He's not exactly like him. I think he's modeled after him. I think yeah. he's the – Vampire Diaries version of yeah uh, that's Angel. yeah because I don't I don't like hate Stefan's character a lot of people think he's quote unquote boring but I'm like that's only because he's not as crappy as a like a person and or like murderer as everyone else in the show and not as toxic apparently we need a Vampire Diaries podcast because <laughs> I feel For like how much we talk yeah. about it it's just so it like that one in Twilight's like vampires. Um, one of the questions that's asked in this episode is, who is Angel really? Uh, Leah, I think you mentioned earlier about how we see multiple iterations of Angel in this episode. Is he a lazy, irresponsible Irishman who likes to party and wants to see the world? Is he the cruel, sadistic monster of a vampire? Is he the lonely, depressed, soul-filled vampire who eats rats in alleyways and doesn't know his place in the world? Or is he Buffy's quiet, brooding boyfriend who sometimes fights along her, which is ironically the only iteration of Angel that we don't actually see in this episode? Um, at this point, we don't know who Angel is or who he will become, which I think is Really interesting. Like he's turned into an incredibly layered character. And as Buffy says later on in this episode, it's not that simple. Things are a lot more complicated than they were, you know, a year earlier when she came to the Hellmouth for the first time. That's really interesting that you bring that up too. Cause I never thought about the fact that becoming could be more than just Buffy in these two episodes. Mm -hmm. Like we see like a multifaceted angel. Mm -hmm. We see what had to happen for Drusilla to become what she is now. Um, you don't, The only person you don't see is Spike, but he's also kind of more sidelined right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I never thought about that. We don't know who Angel is going to become and or who he is right now. We've seen so many different versions of him. Yeah. Yep. And that's the question that Whistler poses to Angel. He's like, who are you going to become? Are you going to fight for the good guys or the bad guys? At this point, it's a toss-up because the world has never seen an evil vampire with a soul or a conscience. So we just – we don't know. Um, and honestly, like the way – obviously, Buffy is about – the show Buffy is about the character Buffy. And so you, there, this episode is about Buffy, but I honestly kind of see this episode as more of a reminder of – or kind of an episode that's about Angel in a lot of ways, because it's setting up the question of what is Buffy going to choose? Buffy has kind of not been in control of all these things that have happened to her. Uh, what is she going to choose next? Like what's going to happen uh, in this next episode, you know? And so I think in a lot of ways, like we're, we're also being reminded of who Angel is too. And so, yeah, we'll get into it, but there's a lot of interesting questions for this episode. Um, all right. So – Galway 1753. 
right off the bat, this poses a huge problem with what we know of Angel's age. So we know from Halloween that Angel was supposed to turn 18 in 1775, and he was still a human then. So the math doesn't quite add up or make sense. Angel's age changes a bit in the first few seasons of Buffy, mostly due to the fact that David Boreanaz was aging visibly. Um Angel tells Buffy in the episode Angel that he was a demon for 100 years, but we find out it's actually closer to 150 years. And Joss kind of like explains this away. He says, let me clear up this whole timeline confusion once and for all. People seem to be tripping over themselves, and the explanation is really not all that complicated. So for the record, I suck at math. (laughs) So initially, they were saying that Angel was supposed to be 17, turning 18, and then we find out that he's actually 27 in this episode. I'm sorry. 17? Yeah. <laughs> 17? Really? You were going to look at a full-grown David Boreanaz and be like, 17? Like, why couldn't they try and be a little bit more realistic and be like, 20, 21? Like, not still, he's still, you know, young for his age, but he's at least not a literal teenager. If you look at David Boreanaz in season one of Buffy, there is a huge difference in how he looks in his face in season one mm-hmm. versus season two. I don't know what happened, but David Boreanaz like had a growth spurt or something. Fast. He yeah. grew. Yeah. He looks like he could pass as a possible 17-year-old in season one. Season two, not at all. Not 17. I don't maybe know. Maybe 19. At least at the beginning of the- He looks pretty baby-faced. Yeah, he yeah. does. He really, really does. But also, like, the, the actor was, like, 26 yeah. when he got hired. Yeah. Like, why, like, diminish him to 10 years younger than that? I think they tried to make it so that, like, his emotional state as a vampire was some around the age of Buffy. But then it's like, after a while, you're like, oh, we can't keep like saying that he's going to be 17 as the actor is like aging. Yeah. Um, so I understand. It is a little frustrating sometimes because I'm like, man, I can't even like say how, what age he's supposed to be. Yeah. His age changes a ton. They don't quite nail it down until this episode, obviously. Another thing too is like, he was supposed to be 17 because he was supposed to be around Buffy's age. There wasn't supposed to be this huge age gap between the two of them because how it comes off in this episode could – a lot of people talk about the predatory aspect, you know, the fact that Angel is so much older than Buffy. And we're not talking the fact that he's, you know, like 242 years old. We're talking about like age-wise, you know, statutory rape and all that. The thing is, is that Angel's written to be a 17-year-old. So it wasn't supposed to be that kind of a relationship. And we'll get into that later. In the opening scene, when we open up and we see Galway, Ireland, you can actually hear crickets in the background and stuff. Um, Apparently, Ireland doesn't have crickets because the climate's too cold. So there's kind of a a big goof. (laughs) Which is really funny. I love the show, but sometimes they don't. I feel like they don't like research things, right? Like, Y'all, come on. How hard would it have been like, to put frogs or something? But also, like you'd think, even with the math part, that there are other people who would fact check stuff. Like who? Who are they hiring to fact check things? It, Joss. Joss like, is the fact checker, and everybody just kind of like oh runs God. it by him. And since he what didn't a narcissist, <laughs> I could do all these different jobs. That's fine. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So the episode jumps right in, and this is the first episode without the voiceover narration from Giles, you know, into every generation. There's a Slayer and stuff. It just – it kind of just, like, jumps right in. So I didn't know this. So 
there's a voiceover and it's Whistler, which is a character we've never heard before. When this episode first aired and then was uh, repeated on September 15th, 1998, it was presented with an altered first scene. There are several subtle differences, but the most noticeable is that Max Perlich, who plays Whistler, he provides the voiceover for the scene rather than David Boreanis as it was the first time that it aired. So when this episode first aired, it was actually supposed to be Angel that was talking and doing that voiceover and they changed it to be Whistler. Have you guys ever heard that iteration? Because I have not. I've only ever heard Whistler. Yeah, that was that blew my mind. And I was actually like scrolling on Reddit because I was really curious. And there are several people who have DVD sets that still has David Boreanaz's voiceover. And then they'll go to listen to it on Amazon or watch the episodes on Hulu or something. And it's Whistler. And they're like, what in the world? But yeah, apparently if you go back to your old DVDs, you might be able to find David Boreanaz's voiceover, which is really cool. Also, um, sidebar and slight accomplishment for myself. I think this is the first time rewatching uh, Buffy and uh, immediately recognizing Darla. So, <gasps> wow, well done, Leah. I'm very proud of Thank you. you. <laughs> I remembered her. <laughs> Tabby's shaking her head like the bar is so low. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we hear Whistler saying, here's the thing, there's moments in your life that make you, the set, the course of who you're going to be. Sometimes they're little, subtle moments. Sometimes they're not. I'll show you what I mean. And my first thought was, we know this is going to be a good episode right off the bat because any episode that has a voiceover, you're just like, voiceover, yes. Because like passion and all that, oh, so good. Yep. I will say anyone who tries to argue that – Vampirism is not a euphemism for sex after this episode. I'm like, come on, y'all. Like, sometimes it is a little less obvious than others, but then other times it's really slam dunked in your face. Yeah. (laughs) A really obvious one for me, too, is the Angel episode in season one where Buffy challenges him to take a bite of her and then he decides not to. That one is a little bit obvious for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Julie Benz, who plays Darla, has this to say about her character. She said, when I was all in vampire face, I would look at the mirror and I would smile at myself. And she was like, wow, that's pretty scary. Just like looking in and seeing your vampire face. She said, I view myself as his mother and lover all rolled into one. Darla was looking for a playmate, which is why she picked Angel. She really is like one of the worst demons in killing. She loves to kill and she loves the hunt and to drink blood. It's all very sexual to her and she wanted somebody else that she could create to have fun with. Which makes sense why she would pick Liam. Well, I was about to say too, I was like, there has to be some twisted like thing that she's into only because I would not be attracted to Angel at this point. Like he's like being all like, he's like sloppily like walking in, like just like, oh, like what's a girl like you doing an alley like this with the guy with the reputation like mine? I'd be like, um, nothing. Can you get away from me? <laughs> um, but he just seems like a, like a boy. Like he doesn't know what he's doing, which makes sense that it's kind of like that whole predatory, evil vampire thing because we see that later on with Angel and Buffy as Angelus, not Angel. I think there's a lot of mirrors between like that and this episode, but I I thought about that. I brought that in my notes. I'm like, what did she see in him? She's like all like, oh, I like she immediately is like, oh, I'm going to turn him into a vampire. I'm like, really? I disagree. I think that she initially wanted to just feed off of him, 
But I think that something about him actually Hmm. caught her interest and she chose to make him a vampire instead. That's interesting. Because like their conversation is very interesting to me. Like they're talking and you can tell his answers are surprising her. And even the fact that like, like she's like, oh, okay, I want to show you something. And he completely trusts her and he doesn't react to the bite. Like he doesn't like push her off and run away. Like it's just like I think that there was a part of him that really stuck out to her. Like I think there was a very dark twisted part of him. I I agree. I wasn't saying that like she lured him over there to make him a vampire. I'm saying that I'm just surprised that while talking to him, she decided to make him a vampire pretty quickly. Um, But I also think that him not responding, I think part of him was just so lost that he just kind of was like, yeah, come what may. Like I feel like he sort of had like a death wish where he's like, whatever. So I think maybe that aspect, she's like, oh, I could use him too because like he didn't seem to be scared of a lot of things. He wants to see what the world has to offer. And I think that was the whole point of their conversation. She's like, oh, it's going to be scary. And he's like, oh, I'm not afraid. And so I think you're right, Leah. Like a lot of his responses kind of like intrigued her. I think he didn't respond because the idea is they're supposed to like drain their blood till till where they're almost dead if they're going to change them. And then they're, they have to be alive enough to like drink your blood. So I think she just like drained him pretty closely. And so he was too weak to be able to do anything, which is why he like – fell to his knees but i mean like okay so the conversation he's like you know i asked myself what's a lady of your station doing alone in an alley you know all that stuff she said maybe she's lonely and so um he then offers himself as an escort to keep her from harm and i think at this point she's not thinking of changing him i think she's just like i'm just gonna drink him and i'm just talking him because i am lonely yeah i agree she says you're very gracious he says it's often been said and then she says are you certain you're up to the challenge and i think his confidence and like bravado is what kind of caught her attention not to mention you know he has a pretty face and then he's like you'll find that with the exception of an honest day's work there's no challenge i'm not prepared to face and i wrote in my notes he's swaggering you can tell he is confident around the ladies and darla has kind of a quiet confidence she's letting him think that he's in control of the situation but in actuality she is which i I thought was really interesting and so then he gets close and then he says oh but you're a pretty thing where are you from and at this point like when he's looking at her it's like he sees past the facade and he sees he touches something deep inside of her and i think they they had a connection in that moment and in that moment i think darla like starts to think about hey maybe i should change him i could show you uh, or she says around everywhere. And then he gets like a look of longing when he talks about how like he's always wanted to see the world. The way that she says, I could show you things you've never seen, never even heard of. It's very fast the way that Julie Benz delivers it, which makes it sound like it was an almost impulsive decision that she's like, oh, I, c- I could show you like, uh, like she's so lonely. Yeah, she's I like, agree. here's someone that could like, I could do stuff with you. And I think it was an impulsive decision based upon a connection that they made, a connection she made off of someone that she was planning on making her prey. You know what I mean? I agree. And from what we've seen of Darla, she doesn't seem like anyone who just wanted to spend her time with anyone. Like, True. I really don't think she was going around making like eternal companions because she was lonely. Yeah. I think that she saw something in Angel and desired a relationship with him specifically. Yeah. Yeah. It also makes it that much more heartbreaking when Angel stakes her in the episode Angel and she turns around and looks at him and says, Angel, like in that one look, she's going, 
look at everything we've been through. Look at all the stuff that we've gone through together, you know? This is one of those situations where, like, I know having, like, flashbacks is super rewarding for fans, but I just wish that we had known this before he had staked her because it would have been more, like, monumental. I just think of, like, like Star Wars or whatever, where it starts, like, in the future, and then they go back, and you're like, oh, this is why it's in effect. And then, I mean, for me personally, I'm known, but piss off some people i like star wars i really do but i think watching i don't understand why people were so obsessed with the older ones without seeing a lot more of the lore later on because i'm like it's set up so much and you could see why like obi-wan was you know lonely or whatever i'm getting off tangent or, <laughs> or whatever. but like but what i'm saying is, is like i feel like it's kind of like oh like so this is them like you get like a taste of what it was like like them being companions and so like you kind of forget how impactful this and how hurt she was when he staked her an angel yeah but i think that's what makes the rewatches so rewarding so now people who are watching this will go back to season one and have a whole new understanding and whole new depth to the episode that they're watching you know um i think that it's not necessarily a retcon as much as okay i'm gonna get like huge flack for this i don't think it's as much of a retcon as some parts of star wars are but i think that um i think it fits very well i agree with, you. with season one i think it's just it adds more context and fullness to both angel angel and darla you know um so she says i could show you things you've never seen never even heard of he says i'm not afraid show me show me your world and again i don't believe that angel knew that she was a vampire what he was getting into i think he just saw her wealth her beauty and her station and back then like just i mean as it is today someone who has more money has the ability to travel the world and go see all that stuff so i think he was thinking hey i want to go see the world i don't think he was thinking haha i'm going to turn into a vampire you know um and Darla tells him to close his eyes. We have the whole thing where she bites him, draws the line of blood across her chest, sucks her blood, becomes Angelus. And I just – I keep thinking about Joss's um, quote where he talks about in Innocence where, you know, Angel slept with Buffy and now he's like killing hookers in the in the alleyway. <laughs> because this is very much a parallel to that where it's like, you know, it is a parallel to sex like you were talking about, Tabs. It's also – uh, it's noteworthy that this is the first siring we've ever seen on the show, and it happens between Angel and Darla. And it's also telling that Liam seems to be closer in personality to Angelus than to Angel, just from what we see of the flashbacks, which I think is very, very interesting and adds a whole other yes, layer. Yes, I noted that too, because I think that um, it's crazy because, like, when you watch Buffy, you kind of get the sense that, like, Angel and Angelus are two different people, and I, I, I think that they're very different, but I do think that, unfortunately, Angel does have some similarities to Angelus. Yep, I agree. I kind of view Angel in three different people. I kind of view him as like Liam, Angelus, and Angel. And I also, I don't know if this was on purpose, but I kind of see it as like a metaphor of like someone like Liam, who hasn't done anything hard in his life, hasn't gone through anything, becomes Angelus, just really goes through just like this whole quote unquote like phase or a long period of their of their life where they just do crappy things. Obviously, in Angelus's case, way worse than the normal person. Um, and then comes out of it, becomes Angel, and is like trying to, I guess, like make amends and turn his life around. And then becomes a very different person 
because he's gone through all that and coming out of it and understanding who he was beforehand. Almost kind of like an addict. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think – There's a lot of parallels. Yes. Angel's parallel is addiction and stuff. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the other flashbacks. I kind of want to save some for there because there's a lot to talk about. But the parallels between that and then all of a sudden flash forward to Angelus now watching Buffy fight multiple vampires like a boss, circling her like a predator. This is very much like passion, how he circled her in the bronze too. It also reminded me of Spike. Oh, Yeah. When Spike comes to town, he's he's like watching her and observing her. Yes. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Buffy tells the vampires to tell Angel that she's done waiting. She's bringing the fight to him. And Angelus is over there just like smirking the entire time. And it, it kind of reminded me of Darla a little bit. Like Angelus is over there like I'm the one in control. Like I sent these guys that you're fighting right now. Like I can do whatever I want, you know. She says, you got that, need me to write it down for you. And eventually she ends up staking him as they continue to attack. And she says, all right, I'll tell him myself. And then walks over when you're groaning. And so we realize that Xander got like hit and is laying underneath a headstone. Um, And he asks her, are you anxious to come up against him? And Buffy says, I want it over with, which I feel like this is such a, speaking in like Enneagram terms, a counterphobic six Because Buffy is just – she's to that point. I think we've all gotten to that point, not just, you know, sixes. I think everyone has gotten to that point where they're dreading something so much that they're just – it's weighing on them that they just want it over with. And I relate with that a lot. I think she's also just sick and tired of it consuming her life. Yeah. She's ready to stop talking about Angel. She's ready to stop worrying. She's ready to just, like, move on. Yeah. And I completely get it. Yeah. Yeah. I love the little parallels to finals. Buffy is all a metaphor for adolescence, right? So like Angelus, the upcoming fight with Angelus is kind of a metaphor for finals. Like, oh my gosh, like it's going to all be over at some point. We just want it over with. We want it done. Angelus, yes, my love, it will be. So in the museum, we see archaeologists cleaning off dirt from a big rock in a museum. Giles comes in and apparently Giles was recommended by the Washington Institute to examine the huge box, which I was like, dang, like everyone's been sleeping on Giles. Giles reveals that the to the curator that it actually opens, um, takes a sample of the dirt and asks them not to open it until he translates the text, which good call. That scene was so funny to me because you literally have a room full of experts and people who have been examining this. Yeah. And within five seconds of stepping in the room, you have Giles who's like, oh, have you opened it? Yeah, right. Like, they didn't even know it could open. Like, it's just like, dang, immediately trumps everyone in that There's room. like a giant crack right there. They're like, hmm, I wonder what that could be. It gives me the same energy as Evie in The Mummy when she's walking by and the guy's trying to open up the book. She's like, I believe you need a key for that. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> Um, so in the cafeteria, Xander's playing with his food using toothpicks and fish sticks to act out Buffy's slang, which I think is hilarious because for me, like, you know, the last episode was go fish and Xander's now playing with fish sticks. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, Cordelia looks very amused and very supportive. Willow's sitting on Oz's lap. Buffy's like, yep, that's exactly how it happened. Oz is like, I thought it was riveting. I was a little unclear about some of the themes. And 
Did you guys notice on Oz's tray he has animal crackers? Cute. Why is that significant? Because in What's My Line, the whole like thing that started off him with Willow was they were talking Monkey about. Monkey with pants. I swear sometimes you guys just make stuff up. We aren't, dude. Where have you been? <laughs> that part was ad-libbed. I'm sorry. I don't remember one line about animal crackers. And Buffy says the theme is Angel's too much of a coward to take me on face to face. Willow asks again if Buffy is ready to fight Angel. Buffy wishes people would stop telling her that. She says, I'm willing and able. It's the one test I might actually pass. And the funny thing is, I actually do believe Buffy when she says this. I don't think she's just merely saying it. I think she legitimately is ready. And I think that like we've had multiple episodes now for Buffy to kind of get over things. And I think I only have eyes for you is like the episode where she like legitimately was like, okay, I'm ready. I think I can do this now. This little interaction between Cordelia and Xander, I think, is really, really interesting. Go Fish, for all its faults, I think, does an excellent job of at least pushing the Cordelia relationship with Xander forward a lot. We finally, I feel like, get to actually see Cordelia's true, real, authentic feelings for Xander in a verbal way, not just in a um, – not necessarily physical way that we saw in Bewitched, Bother and Bewildered. I don't know. I just think that like with each episode, it kind of like pushes it forward a little bit more. But like, you know, she's trying to compliment Willow and like she ends up insulting her, but I feel like she's like her intentions are good. And then Xander, like they start to like insult each other. Cordelia's like, oh, you know, you're a loser or whatever. But like he doesn't seem hurt by her jabs. Instead, they kind of like go on to kind of flirt a little bit. But I thought it was really refreshing to kind of see that like Actually, Cordelia and Xander have grown in their relationship and they like might actually, at least Xander might actually care for Cordelia. I don't know. I thought it was like a really like sweet moment. The moment in that interaction that stood up to me the most was actually the initial one where he's doing his little like charade with like the tots or whatever it is that he has, the fish sticks. And um, after he goes through his whole like skit or whatever, rather than her being like, you're so annoying or like going on this like long tangent about being embarrassed by him. She just says, oh, that's it. She says something along the lines of like, that's what you want. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's not yeah. like a, like, she's like annoyed or embarrassed. It's more of like, she was expecting it to be worse. So she just was like, oh, okay. Like, it's just <laughs> like, I think like she's starting to accept him. And even when she says like, you're such a yes. loser, it felt very playful. It wasn't like she was trying to say it to like get under his skin at all. No, and like even when she's watching, she just is very absorbed in what he's doing, very supportive. It's really cute. I, I'm enjoying it. I never thought I'd say this, but, you know, I'm actually starting to like them together a little bit, a little bit I more. Know. I won't say yeah, I won't say I like bit. like them, but a little bit more. Yeah. So then, of course, Snyder has to come up and ruin everyone's fun. Are we having a chair shortage? And he's like, public displays of affection are not acceptable in my school. This isn't an orgy, people. It's a classroom. But also like – why do you have to mention something like that to children who, like, especially Willow, probably doesn't even think about that? Why do you have to put that in her brain? Yeah, I know. It's, and it's also kind of, like, highly inappropriate. Yeah, my principal it mentioned is. orgies, you know? Well, talk, well, yeah, like, talking about any sexual interaction at all with children is not appropriate. But also, like, sexualizing underaged kids in that manner is just not okay. Yeah, exactly. You could just say, hey, can you get off Oz's lap? That's all you have to do. Buffy's sassy remark, yeah, where they teach lunch and like if looks could kill, he's like, just give me a reason to kick you out, Summers. 
And then Cordelia sticking up for Buffy, maybe because you're a tiny, impotent Nazi with a bug up of his butt the size of an emu. And Buffy's like, yeah, sums it up. And they have like this nice little moment, which I feel like we haven't really had that many positive interactions between Cordelia and Buffy. Like I was really genuinely like, oh, this is new. I think, yeah, I think Cordelia and Buffy's dynamic is very interesting to me because Buffy is very sweet to people, but I think that she doesn't get how Cordelia runs her life and Cordelia doesn't get how Buffy runs her life. I don't think they dislike her, each other at all. I think they just don't get each other and or just get really frustrated when the other person does things the polar opposite of how they would do it. So I think in this moment, it's like, oh, like they had like a, a sweet interaction. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we've talked about it before, but Buffy, and we'll see in flashbacks, she was the Cordelia of Hemery, you know? And so I think it's just interesting to see Cordelia even soften a little bit. And then we see the flashbacks of Buffy and we're like, oh, yeah, that's how Cordelia used to be. You know, Willow and Buffy plan to study in her classroom later on that day. And then Willow even asks if Buffy wants to study at her house that night. But Buffy has to patrol, says that she doesn't expect Angel to show up, but that's usually when he does. And then we have our next flashback, London 1860. I love this flashback. Seriously, it throws me every time I see it. I forget it's in here because I always think about Buffy's flashbacks and Angel's, but I don't think about Drusilla's. So we're in a church and we see a human Drusilla, which is just weird, looking completely normal. Her clothing is very light. She has on like a white head covering as she enters a confessional. Angelus kills the priest in the other one. Andrew begins to confess that it was two days since her confession. Angelus, that's not very long. (laughs) Dude, this scene made me so sad. Like... Seeing Drew as an actual, like, victim, you know, because, like, she's such an interesting, complex character, but it's hard to view her as a victim because she's such a compelling villain. But it's like seeing her literally beg Angel, being like, like, I want to be good. Like, I want to be good. Like, knowing who she is now breaks my heart. Yeah, it's it's creepy because Angelus is manipulating her in this. He's using her faith against her, and he's also using her abilities against her, her own power um, for his own gain, which is, you know, it's just incredibly creepy. Drusilla confesses that she is afraid that she has the gift of sight, talks about seeing a mind crash before it happened. Um, Joss Whedon actually went on to confirm that Drusilla was a young Cockney lass whose family were coal miners. She was Catholic and lived in a London and she's she's not a gypsy because a lot of people were confused. They're like, was she the gypsy girl that they killed and stuff? So Drew's mother apparently tells her that she's cursed, that only God is supposed to see things before they happen, um, that it's happening without her control and she feels guilty. I try to be pure in his sight. I don't want to be an evil thing. Angelus, hush child, the Lord has a plan for all creatures, even a devil child like you. You're a spawn of Satan. All the Hail Marys in the world won't help. The Lord will use you and smite you down. He's like that. And then when Drusilla asks what she can do, Angelus is like, just give in, be evil. And she's like, no, I want to be good. I want to be pure. And he says, we all do it first. The world doesn't work that way. The way that the light is 
like all completely on Drusilla and he's in the shadows with just the screen between them. He's touching the screen between them, like where her face is, as he says, God is watching you. It's really interesting because I think in a lot of ways, Angelus sees himself as a godlike figure in the sense that like he's in, he has so much power and control and he can kind of do whatever he wants without consequence and without conscience. The whole God is watching you. He's like, you know, he's, he's very clearly comparing himself to God. I think that. It's interesting that Drusilla is who Buffy could have been if Angelus got to her. The scene starts to show how they're different and why Drusilla was destroyed and not Buffy. Um, and somebody theorized that Drusilla rejects her power, like her, her visions and all that other stuff, versus Buffy accepts them and embraces them. And that's why Buffy ultimately does not give in and is able to not be um, destroyed by Angelus because ultimately – Buffy's true power is in herself versus Drusilla is trying to rely on other people and is afraid to embrace her own power, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there's an underlying tone of free will in all of Joss Whedon's works and specifically in Buffy. You have Drusilla begging God, I say in quotes, or Angelus for help and the idea is that she doesn't believe she has strength nor that she has a choice to help herself. And we'll see Buffy confronted with the same dilemma in the future too. But I just thought that was really interesting. I'm curious like what you guys think about this scene and like the parallels between Drusilla and Buffy. I think that we've we've mentioned before how many similarities there are between Buffy and Drusilla. And I think I didn't even notice how many there were until I'm rewatching it and like actually going through it with the podcast and stuff. Um, and I think it's just one of those things where it's like, like again, we're seeing that parallel of like two women having a fate that they're stuck with and wanting to fight, fight it. You know, we've seen that with Kendra and we've seen that with Buffy. We've seen that even with Giles, even though he's not a girl. Like, and so it's like we're continually seeing how everyone has, unfortunately, this path that they, you know, a role that they have to play. And Drusilla, unfortunately, got one that she didn't want. I mean, neither Buffy didn't want either, but like, it's just so sad. And Drusilla. Drusilla's around Buffy's age, right? I think so. I think that's kind of – I think that's what they're alluding to. I think to. she's either uh, – she even comes off as a little younger in my opinion. So it's like literally a girl who's like Buffy's age is has the same gift of prophecy but just happens to meet like the worst person ever. <laughs> like it's just so sad. I also kind of see it in a very masterful way in storytelling because you see our protagonist as Buffy who, in the beginning at least, rejects her responsibilities, I guess you could say, as like a slayer. And then you get to see someone who's like the mirror image of her, which is Drusilla, and then someone who's kind of like her as well as Kendra, and both of them have tragic fates. And so you kind of watch this and you're like, holy crap, what's going to happen in the next episode? Like, this just really sets up being like, I don't know what's going to happen to Buffy. She's already died. But, like, is she going to lose herself? Kind of like, is she going to lose her, like, humanity portion? Kind of like Drusilla? Or is she going to lose her, like, life portion, like Kendra? And so I think it kind of, like, opens up a lot of, like, 
I don't know, you you kind of fear for Buffy. You're like, what is she going to lose? We have so many other seasons. I don't know, watching it years later, you know that there's going to be several other seasons. So you're like, what is she going to have to compromise? Because you're seeing these two other people who are reflections of Buffy and you're like anticipating what's going to happen to her. And I, I do, like, I think that's a great point, Tabby. And I think that one thing that is so crazy to me about this finale specifically is like obviously without spoiling anything i really feel like the show takes a much more mature tone after this season like the ending of season two is what establishes it as a a heavy thought out show like just the show impresses me so much but like especially i think with this finale and from here on it just is it is really well done. You start to realize, okay, this is more than just a self-aware superhero show. This is like a show that's really going to kind of look at more than just the demons that adolescence has to go through. But then you're like, holy crap, this is taking a lot more like deep things and really going there. And so really kind of like Leah said, sets it up for the entirety of the show, which again, kind of like what I was saying, makes you worried for all the things they're going to have to talk about for the next five seasons. Drusilla is such a tragic character to me because she basically has her free will taken away from her once she turns into a vampire. She has no hope of of ever having a soul. And so she is not capable of choosing to do good after this. Angelus can because he has a soul now. Buffy can because she still has a soul. But Drusilla, from you know the moment that she turned into a vampire, loses that free will, and I think that makes her a very tragic character because you know this episode is becoming, in some ways, it's Drusilla's origin story. But the problem is, is that she can't go anywhere from here. She has nowhere else to go. You know, and it's just it's very tragic. I also like how they chose to like. Yes, I think that they wanted to show Drusilla. Because um, it gives some clarification to Angel's background. But I, I think that they mainly wanted to show Drusilla because Drusilla obviously plays a big part in the end of this episode. And so I think that they wanted to show yeah. that, like, yes, Drusilla's evil and all that. But at the end of the day, she was once a victim as well. Yeah. What they're doing is they're showing the choices people made in the past, but also, like, what are the choices that people are making now, but also what made them. And what what got them to the choices that they're making now. And it's just, it's it's very interesting. So in the mansion, one of my favorite transitions ever is we fade out from Drusilla's face with the screen over it and Angelus's hand over Drusilla to present time Drusilla, all in red, marching down the stairs. Just a very different look and demeanor, clothing. Even her makeup is incredibly different. And we're reminded that Angelus made her who she is and took her innocence. Like it's it's very jarring. Um, Spike's still in his wheelchair reading a paper. Drusilla talks about how the moon whispered to her all sorts of dreadful things just as Angelus walks in and whacks Spike on the back of his head as he passes by. I love how like it's escalated. It used to be so like, you know, passive aggressive and now it's just like full on aggressive. <laughs> um, Drusilla's like, you know, talking about how she sees, you know, something terrible coming in the museum, a tomb with a surprise inside. Angelus is like, you can see all that in your head. And Spike's like, no, you nitty, she read it in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a picture of the sarcophagus in the paper. Drusilla confirms that it's been whispering to her. Angelus, don't worry, though. Soon it'll stop. Soon it'll scream. That line. Oh, my gosh. 
I like heard it and I was like, I forgot that that was a line. I was like, whoa, like what a cool line. Yeah, especially with Drusilla's like snake face in the back. They're like, we talked about how they they made her makeup to look like a snake and how we have like, even her movements are very snake. Like as she like slithers up and then bites. Well, that it's one so and then at the end she like hypnotizes. And uh-huh. I just think of like, yep. trust in me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> from like the old um, yeah. uh, jungle book. So Joss um, said with Spike and Drew that he that everyone wanted more scenes with James Marsters or Spike because he's a really interesting character to play off of, and James really invests in his characters. Um, and James Marsters says sometimes it feels like man, I'm being written so goofy, and we have to remind ourselves that Joss is a bit of a Chauvian in that way. People are lovable fools. Joss is more interested in what it feels feels like when people are fallible and funny and foolish and dear. Drusilla and Spike have been together for 120 years and they have sustained a romantic love for that long, which is kind of inspiring, really. <laughs> which I kind of agree. I'm like, they honestly had one of the most shippable relationships for this season. Um, he says it is in the contrast between the fact that they don't have souls and they seem to be pure evil and they also seem to have this incredible love that is even deeper than something we may be able to understand. They have a very, very rich romantic life, probably a bit twisted sexual life. <laughs> very accurate, though. No, it really is. And I mean, he he plays it exactly like that's what you see. So in the computer lab, Buffy and Willow are studying chemistry like they planned on earlier in the cafeteria. Buffy calls herself a moron, and I just love Willow's little pep talk right here. She says, will you stop that? You're not stupid. You've just had a lot on your mind. You can learn this real easily, but if you're going to give up, then don't waste my time. Good for Willow. But I also – I love that, like, Willow gives her tough love, but she also completely validates – The fact that, like, Buffy is literally going through one of the hardest things anyone could ever go through. But she acknowledges the fact that Buffy is so strong. And she's, like, very believing in the fact that Buffy is capable. And I think that's so beautiful. So as Willow goes on to explain, Buffy's pencil falls between the cracks of the desk and the file cabinet, landing next to the floppy disk. This part is so mean. So mean. Because she grabs it and then goes right back to learning. And for 10 seconds, like... Everything's normal, and we're all screaming at the TV. Like, what? you're no. like, no. Okay, wait. Can I ask why does she say I got deja vu? Did I miss like a, a scene where she like dreamed something or? Yeah, she says I have this perfect memory of the pencil, and so we know Buffy has prophetic dreams. So we never see it on screen, but it's alluded to the fact that Buffy probably saw it happen. She probably – it was probably some sort of prophetic dream where she saw the pencil falling and everything. But yeah, you did not miss okay. anything. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing something. So Willow puts the floppy disk into the computer. Buffy realizes it's the restoration spell before Willow, which I thought was really interesting. And then as it sinks in, we hear the Bangel theme in the background, but it's like this very different type of theme. It's not as much like reminiscent. It's more ominous in a way because it's kind of like just another thing that Buffy has to think about now, another layer We hear many different versions of their theme in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, we do. 
So then we jump directly. I just love this. We jump directly to Angelus running through the woods in the Romanian woods in 1898. Again, I love how Joss set this up. Like, you know, we have Drusilla in the past, Drusilla in the present. We have the restoration spell in the present. Then we have now Angelus in the past actually getting his soul. Um, it's just very, very well done. Um, one of the elders approaches him, says it hurts. Yes, good. It will hurt more. And it's just really interesting. Like the emotions that David Boreanaz puts on his face is phenomenal. You can tell that Angelus is feeling the weight of everything without fully remembering everything. But that it's he did. also like not to, you know, bag on the people who just like lost their most beloved, you know, daughter of the tribe. But like <laughs> there is a difference between like wanting to get even and even like seek vengeance, even like a bit of revenge, I understand. But this is so beyond cruel. Like, you're literally giving him back any sort of humanity, but then you're taking away any chance of, like, growing and learning from it. Because anytime he is happy, he immediately goes back to the animal that killed people before. I just have a bone to pick with these people. It's easier for us to forgive because we've seen Angel. So we we see the pain that he goes through. But for these people, like, this is a soulless monster who's, like, completely evil. Like, this is the best possible curse to be able to come up with. The fact that, like, he has to live with himself, but he can't fully ever be a vampire or fully ever be a human. Like, he's doomed to basically live a very lonely, secluded life in full pain all the time. I don't have beef with these gypsies. I think I have more beef with the generations afterwards with, like, Miss Calendar. Yes. Because it's like they're clearly yeah. going after someone who has changed for over 100 years, has made so many efforts to be a champion, to be somebody who defends, like, the weak and, like, has not killed somebody in a very, very – at least what we know – a very, very long time – ate rats for however long that we don't know about and so that he wouldn't kill people. And it's like, you no longer know the person that he killed. So why does it have to be vengeance? Like he already has had his revenge. He literally can't enjoy anything in his life. Like why do you have to go out of your way to like further ruin him? I think the saddest part for me is the fact that he feels the weight of it without fully remembering everything that happened. And then as the guy's telling him that, like, you've killed a bunch of people, he's sitting there going, no, like, how could I kill anybody? Because, you know, Liam as the person is over there going, I, I've never – like, I've never wanted to murder anyone or hurt anyone. How could you say I'd be doing all those things? And it's also just sad, too, because Liam or Angel or whoever is feeling the effects of this curse not Angelus. So they're cursing. It almost feels like they're cursing the wrong person. But that's just how the curse works. And it's very That's painful. a good way of putting it, Sarah. Yeah. It's just sad. It, you feel bad for Angel slash Liam. And you're like, no, like Angelus is the one that's supposed to be feeling this. And he's not. So in the library, Buffy and Willow show the restoration spell to Giles and tell him that Miss Calendar had been working on it. Giles is, like, super impressed and is, you know, like, wow, like, Jenny did all this and Xander's over there. Body language says everything. Not looking at them initially. Uh, <laughs> all right, guys. Here we go. go. All right, here we go. Let me get through it and read it and then you can okay. you can say go your piece. It. I know you're – I know you're dying. I am. Xander, so he killed her before she could tell anyone about it. What a prince, huh? 
Willow immediately perks up. I've been going through her files and researching the Black Arts for Fun or Educational Fun, and I might be able to work this. Yeah. Willow's face is extremely interesting Mm -hmm. in this entire scene. She doesn't say a whole lot, but her face speak volumes. I've never seen her look quite like this before. Mm-hmm. She has a very – she has a look of confidence, determination, excitement. Or that she's been waiting for this. She's been waiting for an opportunity. Yes. Giles looks concerned and touched that she do this. It says, Willow channeling such potent magics through yourself, it could open a door that you may not be able to close. And honestly, given Giles's past experience with the cult, I like – I would listen to him. Also, the fact – I wonder if he's hesitant to do it himself because of his past addiction, but also, like, he talks about, like, the channeling of potent magics. When we've seen Giles do magic in the past, he's always using an item to channel the magic through. The necklace and Bewitched, Bother and Bewildered, and then he uses Amy and Buffy and the witch. He doesn't actually channel the magic through himself, which is what he did when him and Ethan Rain were channeling Igon. They were actually, like, channeling the monster through themselves. So apparently there is a differentiation between channeling an item versus channeling yourself. Yeah. And this well, that's, spell requires I've that. always kind of viewed it as the black arts is channeling through yourself and are getting a high off of it. Whereas you could like mm. use magic and like float a pencil or like things like that that can help your environment rather than like changing your inward self, which is a great metaphor in my opinion. For, like, drugs yeah. or, like, anything like that. It also adds a nice little distinction between doing just, like, everyday magic versus, yeah. like, you know, crossing a boundary. And it would make sense why, like, you have Amy over there who very clearly is channeling things, I think, through herself. And she seems to be a little, like, kind of teetering on the dark side of things. Well, when she wasn't a rat. <laughs> She's calling out to gods, too, which can't just be like, yeah. oh, help me move this chair. It's like, nope. This is yeah, a, right. This is a god of, yeah. you know, like fertility. This is a god of like the underworld. This is, you know. Vengeance. Yeah. And yes. Yeah, exactly. And then Xander. Hi. For those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Yes, definitely start an argument calling everyone crazy because that's the best way to get them on your side. Can for I talk sure. now? Yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Listen, y'all. I know there's some Xander stands. Whatever. <laughs> I'm just letting you all know now if, let's say, for some reason I was in the supernatural world and I was somehow put in the position of Willow or Buffy, if my friend had the goal to stand up there in the room and make jokes and try and, like, tell me to go and kill my boyfriend when there could be the slight chance of redeeming him, I would literally kill him. Like, the fact that, like, A, he goes so far to to kind of, like, slander uh, Jenny's name, because you hear Giles say, like, like this seems it was to be Jenny's, Jenny's wish. last wish. Yeah. Like, we should, yeah, we should honor that. Giles, the only person in the room who has a legitimate reason to be more on the opposed side is, like, maybe we should honor Jenny. Maybe we should do this. And then you have Xander there. Who thinks that he has the right to be like, no, like he steps on Giles' toes, he steps on Willow's toes, he steps on Buffy's toes, and he just like is so insensitive because it's like, here's the thing, even if, let's say, Angel doesn't deserve a quote-unquote redemption, which I think he does, you are asking Buffy to 
lay all of her love and conviction and belief in this person to just put them aside because you think that they deserve to be dead. But at the end of the day, Xander isn't the one who's going to be using the stake, using the sword, whatever. It's Buffy. So it's like you're asking her to take on the trauma of killing her boyfriend because you don't like him. That's really what it is. I would also like to say, too, that Xander is not understanding what the context of what's going on right now in the in the room. So, like, Giles asks, ding, ding, ding. Giles yep. asks Buffy, what do you think? He's asking her what she yep. thinks. But also, Buffy well, says... Willow actually... Willow asked... Willow asked her what she thought. Oh, okay, my bad. But also, Buffy says, if I can't overpower Angel, Willow's got to be my second front. This is our only other chance of defeating Angel, is if I can't kill him, maybe Willow can restore Angel's soul and everything will be fine. It's not like a, oh, let's restore Angel's soul, like, just because I want my boyfriend back. It's like, how can we stop Angelus? Yeah. So there's a couple things here. So I'm going to mention the things that Xander's doing wrong, and then I will mention the things that Xander gets right, because I will try to play devil's advocate. And I know everyone's still throwing things at the screen, but just hear me out. So first of all, Xander saying who cares is in complete dismissal and overlooking of Buffy's feelings, especially when she very quietly says, I care. And then he says, is that right? So he's He's completely overlooking Buffy's feelings. Let's say even if, let's say Buffy just does want to bring Angel back simply because she loves him. Is that necessarily a wrong reason to bring someone back? No, it's not. Like, And then, you know, Giles, let's not lose our perspective here. Arguably, Giles has more of a reason to hate Angel than Xander, yet he's not losing his cool and is also thinking of Buffy. And then, okay, the second thing was is that Cordelia backs him up and he completely yells at her and snaps and then talks about how he realizes that she's supporting him and then he's embarrassed. And then he says, I'm going to get back to the point. No, what you do in that moment is you apologize to your girlfriend for yelling at her. You don't say, I'm embarrassed, so I'm just going to brush past it. No, you stop. His default is that she's not defending him and or like, even if, let's say that she had a good point to say, she's still allowed to say it. She's still allowed to say that he's wrong in a situation. Like his default was to get angry with her and to shut her up and then not even apologize. That really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't have to agree Mm -hmm. with him just because she's his girlfriend. And and just because you're not agreeing with someone doesn't mean you're not supporting them. And the thing is, is that him saying for once, Xander, who was the person that was like standing by you when she thought you turned into a fish? Like, don't just say for once. Like, Cordelia has a long history of actually supporting him. She brought him donuts and coffee when he was guarding Buffy's hospital room door. Like, Cordelia supports him for sure. So, like, just on multiple levels, I think that just made me really angry. Um, Buffy says, I don't know what happened to Angel wasn't his fault. And he says, yeah, but what happened to Miss Calendar is – which again, no, no, it's not. So, okay, very clearly we know those are all the things that are wrong. Um, I wanted to read to you guys something that I thought was really interesting. So 
First of all, I wanted to talk about um, the way everyone's set up in the room is really interesting. So they have, you know, Xander on one side, Buffy on the other side of the room, which is very intentional. Cordelia is clearly siding with Xander and she's behind him like she has his back. Willow and Giles are the ones that are kind of caught between everything and they're standing between Buffy and Xander and they're both sideways. They both were completely facing Buffy. And then as Xander talks, you can tell they both shift their bodies halfway, but they don't fully turn towards Xander with Willow turning to face Xander once he starts like speaking some major crap. She has a lot of condemnation on her face and almost kind of like shock, like she can't realize that what he's saying is actually coming out of his mouth. Giles doesn't quite look Xander in the face until he starts to mention Jenny. And it's... Like the body language kind of just screams that Giles and Xander feel, or Giles and Willow feel very caught in the middle. I think that Giles is probably the one that has the most inner turmoil. I think that there's probably a part of him that really hasn't forgiven Angel for what he's done and probably thinks that he should die. Yet he's torn by his love for Buffy and for Jenny. Like you hear him saying it was Jenny's last wish. I think in the end, Giles will side with Buffy because he honors and respects her as like the slayer, but also because he loves Jenny. Um, but you can tell that like he's kind of loath to do that through his body language. It's just, it's really well done. All the actors and the blocking and stuff, I thought like tells a, a really good story. Even if you didn't have any audio, you would kind of figure out whose side everyone was on. All right. So yeah, Xander says, the way you, you the way I see it is you want to forget all about Miss Calendar's murder so you can get your boyfriend back. So here's the thing. What Xander's saying isn't 100% wrong. I'm not saying it's 100% right, but he brings up a really interesting point. Buffy does want her boyfriend back, but Xander's acting like his intentions are noble and he's above board when we all know that he is speaking out of some form of jealousy. The very same thing can be said for Xander as well. He wants to forget about Angel's innocence so he can keep Buffy to himself. He's doing the exact same thing that he's accusing Buffy of. I, I like that you're playing devil's advocate, but I, I also feel like even if Buffy was like, hey, guys, I know this may not be the most rational thing, but I, I, like, I want my boyfriend back. It's not Angel who actually, you know, killed Miss Calendar. That would not be a crazy thing to ask. Like, Angel sure. isn't the one who actually killed her. It's Angelus. Like, right. that's what's so annoying is it's like, oh, you just want your boyfriend back. So what if she does? Like, yeah, that's wait. You should. He should know Buffy's character to know that she would never just be like, "Oh, I just want my boyfriend back, so I'm going to put people's lives at risk." Like yeah. that's not who she is. But if it was, if she was like, maybe I just want, you know, the chance to make sure that Angel's okay. She deserves that. She saved everyone. Yeah, but. Just because Buffy deserves it, does that mean it's right to bring Angel back when, you know, he's a, a killer and he could possibly turn again? There are questions that should be asked here, but the problem is that Xander's not doing it in a helpful way and it also his motivations are sus, so it's hard to, like, take him seriously. Um, Passion of the Nerd on YouTube, he's fantastic, but he talks about how any good Buffy episode will do two things, divide the fandom and then crush its soul completely. And that's what this episode does. It really does that. Um, he also said something too, is this, this is really interesting. 
He says that, you know, seeing the Scoobies torn about this is actually refreshing, if not infuriating. It's realistic that they would be arguing about something as huge as this. Is restoring Angel's soul discounting and ignoring Teresa, Jenny, and countless others' lives? The rub is, we're about to see an ensouled Angel trying to do good. The show gives us a hard question, then makes it harder by reminding us of the man Angel can be and was at one point, the man Buffy fell in love with. And then Passion of the Nerd says, Xander simply wants Angel dead, and perhaps that is justice of a sort. His method for making his point in this scene is brutal and ugly, even to Giles. I want to note and acknowledge that though, that Xander believes he's behaving rightly. While I think his bitterness and spite towards Angel developed for selfish reasons and colors his interpretations in ways he doesn't account for, that does not mean that I think that he's acting deliberately towards Angel's end, simply so that he can have Buffy all to himself. Xander is a, let's say, good soul for lack of a better term. He isn't malicious. He is a character that genuinely wants to do good, but his lack of self-examination, you know, what we always say emotional immaturity. His Mm. lack of self-examination means his judgment is clouded and his judgment guides his actions. But the most frustrating thing about this scene is no one articulates the specifics of what he isn't considering. They all speak in generalities. He goes on to say that he finds that incredibly frustrating to watch because it feels so categorically incorrect to him. He says Angel was very unambiguously a good guy and was proven so to Xander on more than a few occasions. He helped save Buffy and Prophecy Girl. He helped storm the frat house in Reptile Boy. And he helped save Jenny in the Dark Age. And those are just the heroic acts that Xander was witness to. And these are the actions Angel took after he had already gallivanted around Europe, eating people with Spike, Darla, and Drusilla. Nor does anyone bring up the fact that Xander once turned evil, helped tear a pig to pieces, and very nearly was part of consuming the school principal, where he not already distracted by trying to rape Buffy. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I that's ugh, thank you that you brought up. I, I agree. But like that's another thing too is like no one holds Sander accountable for the fact that he was a part of the group that killed the the old principal. He may not have done it, but he was a part of that group and no one holds them accountable like they were victims like and it's like no one holds him accountable for like attemptedly raping Buffy because oh he wasn't all there well neither is Angel he didn't own up to it and Angel as someone who came out of being Angelus was constantly reminding himself and owning up to it yep that's what it is yeah yeah I think that passion of the nerd hit it directly on the head when he talks about the fact that the frustrating part of this episode or this moment is that nobody specifies why Xander is wrong because there's a very good argument to be made and nobody really says it. Everybody just kind of takes what Xander is saying. I, and I think that's a valid point. But I think that the episode and Joss is making some good points in there. What they're trying to do is they're trying to challenge us as the audience and say, okay, and even as Buffy and and kind of put into question what Buffy's going to do in Becoming Part 2. Is Buffy actually going to kill Angelus? We don't know. At this point, there's been so much back and forth between everything that, you know, it could go either way. And so it, it does what it's supposed to do. It just, I don't know that it's necessarily done as efficiently as it could have been, you know? 
All right, so the curator is working near the sarcophagus, hears whispering, touches the stone. Drew appears and bites him as Angelus and the gang surround the stone. So in Buffy's room, she's getting ready for her patrol and is on the phone with Willow. This whole, yeah, Xander was pretty much being a Willow. Where'd you learn that word? My God, you kiss your mother with that mouth. And I was like, I want to hear what Willow said. Do you think it's in the script? No, I don't think so. I, I wish. Want to see if it, let me see if I can find the script. Yeah, you should see if you can find the script. Um, also, fun fact. So the poster behind Buffy's head is framed in such a way that you see the word uh, Los Angeles, like Angelus, behind her over her shoulder. And multiple times throughout this episode, there's like the word Los Angeles or just Angelus right behind somebody. And I think it's kind of to point out and show us that like – Angel is not too far from Buffy's mind. Like, he's always there, and their fates are very intertwined. So Buffy goes to the drawer to grab some steaks, and as she says she doesn't know what she wants to do, we see the Clawdaw ring, and we hear their song. This part is so sad. Kind of reminds me of Innocence when she sees the ring and then cries on the bed. I think this one, she has, like, a tad bit of hope, which is just, like, you're like, I don't know where this is going to go. Like, I don't know what they're trying to do for the second episode. I think this is just like symbolic too of Buffy's emotions. I think she's kind of buried those emotions for Angel deep down really far because like in order to be able to kill him, she has to do that. And I think this sudden like hope that she has of Angel actually coming back and then seeing the ring, I think she's like, man, I know what I want to do, but what should I do? You know? So in the graveyard, Buffy is patrolling in probably the most sensible outfit we've ever seen her in with a black hoodie. <laughs> I think it's supposed to directly contrast her patrolling outfit when we see her, you know, becoming the Slayer for the first time. <laughs> Kendra appears. And I love this. I love this whole entire interaction. Just wanted to test your reflexes as she gives her like a little smirk. And then Buffy's like, how about testing my face punching? Because I think you'll find it's improved. <laughs> I just am so sad about Kendra. <laughs> so underused. I agree. Also, I looked in the script. I couldn't find what what nasty word Willa was using. <sighs> Bummer. Maybe we would have all would have had a little bit of closure. <laughs> yeah, that's what we needed. So Kendra says that she was sent by her watcher since a dark power is rising. Well, Buffy says it for her, but then, oh, there's the dark power in the mansion. Drusilla, Spike, Angelus, and the other vamps surround the sarcophagus, which is now in the mansion. Spike, it's a big rock. Can't wait to tell my friends. They don't have a rock this big. I just, I love the fact that they don't overuse Spike in this episode, but then there's also yes. part of me that's like, I want more one-liners. <laughs> Well, Spike's just so over it. Like, he's just done with everything. And I watched his face this entire scene because I was, like, curious what he was going to be doing. And I was dying. So Angelus reveals that Akathla the demon is inside, tries to swallow the world, and was killed by a virtuous knight who pierced the demon's heart before he could draw a breath to perform the act. Akathla turned to stone, as demons sometimes do, and was buried where neither man nor demon were wont to look. They buried it near a hellmouth? Like, that doesn't seem like, that doesn't make sense. Also, what is a knight doing in Southern California? Like, I have so many questions. Doesn't make sense. But we'll go with it. 
So this shot is just beautiful. It's low to the ground and moving forward. And the way that it like is angled, it makes the tomb seem a lot bigger and adds a sense of foreboding as we see like Angelus doing the classic supervillain walk with his shoes and his black leather pants and everything. It's just, it's really cool. Angelus, my friends were about to make history end. And I said, LOL, because earlier Buffy was talking about how she'll never use history ever in life. And then Angelus is like, you know, giving history lessons to Spike and stuff. So back in the library, Giles, I've been on the phone to the museum. The artifact is missing and the curator has been murdered. Vampires. I just love that line. And the curator has been murdered. Buffy, you're sure this was the tomb of Alfalfa? What was there another situation where she said something that wasn't accurate? Oh, oh, oh. It was something along the lines of like at the asteroid body. And he's like, you mean astral projection or something like that and she's like was that oh it was a nightmare she's like did i see his asteroid body (laughs) oh yeah i know i just love it (laughs) um the theory is is that she's referring to the little rascals character um and then she later calls akathla al franken who's the comedian writer actor for snl it's just funny how she just can never remember and calls it random other names (laughs) seriously reminds me of you leads just really funny. <laughs> so they have the same information Angelus does, provided by Kendra and her watcher. Giles elaborates on the sucking into hell thing explained um, by Angelus. He explains that the demon universe exists in a different dimension, that a Catholic creates a whirlpool that pulls everything on Earth into that dimension, causing horrible suffering for all non-demon life. Buffy tells Willow that she thinks she should try the curse. And I think this is interesting. I think you mentioned it earlier, Taps, but the fact that Buffy just now tells Willow that she should do the curse, I think Buffy's been honestly like thinking deeply about this, but I think this kind of seals the deal for Buffy and the point that she makes that this might be like their plan B, their only chance to like save the world, I think is an excellent, excellent reason for trying to do, um, for trying to do the curse. I think If it was just simply the fact that she wanted Angel back, I don't think Buffy would have done it. I think the fact that there's a chance that they could stop the the world from going into hell was kind of like the clincher for her. And I think that that's – she's thinking very rationally and she's thinking with her Slayer side, not just her human side. And I I really respect that. I was about to say, like, that's – I. this is why Buffy is just such a beautiful character to me because it's like – Like, she really is just so unselfish. Like, even, like, a decision like this where most rational people would be like, oh my gosh, I have a chance to save the one person I love, of course I'm going to take it. You can tell she she's so careful and cautious to make sure that any choice she makes doesn't hurt, like, not only the people around her, but also just innocent people in general. Yeah. It, she, once she had the information of what a Catholic can do, she was like, okay, that's it. It's not worth risking all of this stuff for the possibility that Angelus might come back later on down the line and stuff like that. I don't know. I think that this was just a really good call on her end. And then Kendra's like, I think I side with Xander. And I was like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So did Xander go and like vent about this to Kendra? Because Kendra was not in the room for this conversation. So somebody told her who was it? And my but money I is feel on Xander. Like that's actually, I feel like that's kind of normal though. 
Like, to just be, like, frustrated. So it's, like, anytime anyone new comes, you're just, like, oh, my gosh. Okay, someone will agree with me. Let's go talk to them. I think in a normal situation, yes, but she's also another Slayer. I think that's kind of snaky to go to another Slayer who has the same powers as Buffy to kind of get like a second front to go and kill Angel to kind of convince her, especially since we know Kendra is probably going to take that side only because she's a lot more trained to just not think about stuff and just kill, kill, kill. It just seems very strategic to me. Yeah, it feels like Xander was like, haha, I know Kendra will side with me, so I'm going to go yeah. vent with her about this. I don't know. It just like, it was kind of like, how does Kendra know? Like, what the heck? It, watch, it was like Giles talking about it, and we're all getting on Xander. <laughs> and then Buffy's response, oh, I'll fight him. I'll kill him if I have to. But if I don't get there in time or if I lose, then Willow might be our only hope. It's just so unselfish, and it's really, really good thinking. In Buffy's mind, she's going, I want Angel back, but not at the expense of the world and those that I love. Like, it's turned, it's a heart decision, but it's also mostly a practical decision. And she's thinking like a slayer, which I really, really respect. We talked about it in the spoilers for What's My Line, but it's worth mentioning here that Kendra's outfit is very, very similar to Buffy's outfit when she was last there. Go ahead, Leah. This is your I was, Well, your I was going to talk about this. Not only does she start to dress more like Buffy, but she's also wearing different clothes, which means that yes. she's learned something from Buffy because last time she came out here, she talked about she only had one shirt and one outfit because she didn't need material attachments. And so it's showing that Kendra was starting to evolve and she was starting to yep. learn how to be a part of the world. And I think that's what's so sad. It's like – In the small time she had had with Buffy, she was learning from her. Kendra pulls out a sword that was conveniently blessed by the knight who slew the demon originally. There's a a couple of points in there that are very convenient. But again, episode is so well written. I'm like, I don't care. I'll go with it. Who cares? Yeah, y'all can have a few free free pointers. (laughs) Yeah. Sword blessed by the knight, I'll take it. Willow says that she needs another day to figure out the ritual for Angel's soul as well as an orb of Thessala, whatever that is. Giles... A spirit vault for rituals of the undead. I've got one. I've been using it as a paperweight, which cracks me up because you guys remember in Passion, the shopkeeper told Jenny that he sold a couple as new age paperweights the year before and Giles was one of those yep. guys. <laughs> well, we talked about it uh, on the spoiler section and we laughed about it. And so it's so fun to see stuff that we've talked about in the spoiler section actually get to talk about in the normal one. So in the mansion, Spike is practicing his walking while everyone is out of the room. Drusilla calls him into the main room where they have a man brought in for Angelus to drink for the ritual so he will be worthy to free Akathla. Angelus, I will drink, blood will wash in me, over me, and I will be cleansed. I will be worthy to free Akathla. Bear witness as I ascend, as I become. The parallels between Buffy and Angelus are really interesting. In a lot of ways, this episode is all about Angelus becoming who he is, and the next episode is all about Buffy. Um, I just love the whole, like, everything that I am, everything that I have done has led me here. For Angelus, he's like, this is my moment. This is what I was made for. And then we have, like, this really cool flashback. It's just, it's really clever. I love it. Also, Spike's face as Angelus is doing all this, he practically yawns as Angelus is talking about all of this stuff. It's the funniest thing. Spike is just so unbothered. It's so funny. 
Manhattan, 1996. We cut to Angel scrounging around in an alley looking for rats. He looks weak and tired, completely devoid of hope, and very different from the man who ate a priest and compared himself to God. Whistler appears. They take a walk where Whistler tells him to drink blood from butcher shops and that he should live in the world a bit and not isolate himself. Angelus asks who he is, and Whistler turns it right back around and says, I want to know who you are. Angelus, you already do. Whistler, not yet, but I'm looking to find out because you could go either way here, which is really, really interesting. So he reveals his name is Whistler and that he's a demon and says that not all demons are dedicated to the destruction of life, which is news to us. Up until now, again, things have been very, very black and white. The only demon that we've kind of been like uh, iffy about has been Angelus simply because of his soul. I think that's on purpose, though, because this is the first time that Angel's given hope that he doesn't have to be like his demon Mm -hmm. for the rest of his life. Whistlers is the perfect person in this scenario to kind of represent that idea that not all demons and whatever form can be completely bad. Um, And I feel like this is perfect because Angel is thinking, especially for like the last however many years, I'm guessing it's been a long, long time, probably like over 100 years because last time we saw him like Mm -hmm. get his like soul put in him was like in that flashback with the gypsies. So it's been a long, long time. So this whole time he's thinking that he is condemned to just being a demon, but now he feels guilty about it. And so seeing somebody who looks human, just like Angel does, is saying that I am, you know, demon or part demon or whatever he is. And he's like, but I am choosing to be a good person. I Like, Mm. I'm choosing to be this. I'm choosing not to be just the demon that everyone expects me to be. And you see Angel being like, oh. And I think that's the spark of him kind of like, quote unquote, becoming who he's supposed to be. And then seeing somebody like Buffy, who's young and is being thrust into this life that she's not wanting and wanting to protect her. And he's like, I want to become somebody. I want to be this. I want to be someone like you. He even tells Whistler later on that he wants to be taught by him. Yeah, that's a really good point, Tabs. I think that is intentional. You're right. I think it's so important because Angelus is, or Angel at this point, is over here like, I, I'm, I'm a vampire. I can't be anything but evil. Like, that's who I am. And Whistler's over here like, no, you've been dealt this, but you can choose to be something else. And that's really important. Also, it's worth noting, so Angel lost his soul in 1898, and this is 1996, almost exactly 100 years. So Angel's been roaming like this for 100 years now. If it had been anyone else besides a a literal demon telling Angel that, like, redemption and change was possible, Angel would have never believed it. But because it Mm. was a demon, because it was coming from someone who on some Mm -hmm. level could relate to Angel, he was able to actually believe it and understand. Yeah. No, you're you're spot on. Um, Also, fun fact, Max Perlick, who plays Whistler, got his very first role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off playing an economics student. The actress who played one of the other students was Christy Swanson, who played Buffy in the movie. Isn't that funny? So he's technically been, you know, associated with the Buffy movie and also been in the show, which I thought was like super small world. So random. 
So then, Angelus, what do you mean I can go either way, Whistler? I mean that you can become an even more useless rodent than you already are, or you can become someone, a person, someone to be counted. Which I think it's interesting that he says person, because I think at this point, what Angel wants is to become human. And this is like something we see now. Like, I think if Angel had the choice, he would want to be human rather than being a vampire. Um, Angel says, I just want to be left alone. Whistler, I want you to see something. You see, and then you tell me what you want to do. Those words are so important. He's giving Angel a choice. And up until now, Angel hasn't had a choice. He was given his soul without his you know, consent, really. He was turned into a vampire without his consent. For the first time ever, Angel has a choice. This line was also cut from the script. It was probably in this scene. But Whistler says, there are three kinds of people that no one understands. Geniuses, madmen, and guys that mumble. <laughs> so Los Angeles, 1996, the flashback scene we all didn't know that we wanted. Buffy's a freshman in high school. Fun fact, the sunflower straps on Buffy's shirt in the flashbacks are reminiscent of the first two non-cheerleading outfits that was worn by her character in the movie. Um, the red dress with the sunflower appliques and sunflower ring she wears at the mall and then the sunflower t-shirt she wears at home while watching a movie. This scene in general, I think even a lot of the dialogue that she has with the watcher is very 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 similar to the movie and mm -hmm. even her persona is a lot more like the Buffy in the movie than it is Sarah Michelle Gellar's Buffy most notable yeah. is the lollipop yeah her her just brightly colored clothes I mean it is flashbacks to the movie but I think it's also kind of showing who Buffy was before she became Buffy you know like she is very much like Cordelia but also her clothing is lighter and more preppy and you can just tell that she has this she doesn't have a weight on her shoulders that she does now you know it's a lot lighter of a Buffy a man approaches Buffy and says, Buffy Summers, I need to speak with you. There isn't much time. You must come with me. Your destiny awaits. This is supposed to be Merrick, her first watcher. Also, the school bus behind Merrick says Angelus Unified or – yeah, and I keep wanting to say it Angelus, but I guess it's Angelus. Angelus Unified. And again, there's little subtle hints all throughout this episode kind of just showing that Buffy's and Angel's destinies are intertwined. And I want to take a minute real fast to address – and we'll address this more in the spoiler section with everybody else. But I want to address the whole perviness that everyone keeps mentioning in this episode, specifically with Angel watching an underage Buffy. A lot of people have mentioned about how it just feels very creepy and feels like um, Angel's grooming Buffy. And these are some quotes that Bex actually sent me because I asked her. I was like, all right, Bex, hook me up because she's kind of like the queen of all of this. And this is one that I really liked. It says, the vampire romance coming of age story is ancient. Their age is both important and irrelevant. It's important to the main character because it represents something they can't overcome, but it's irrelevant in informing us on the vampires themselves. It's not a character study of the vampires. It's a character study of the teen coming of age. He's an immortal vampire and yet will never be any wiser than 25 to 27 years old. That's the point. They represent status stagnation, especially in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Granted, he's a bit more than that, but only because they happen to give him a complex backstory and pathos. A lot of the quotes talk a lot about how the reason age differences are damaging in relationships is because power dynamics and manipulation and being coerced into things you're not ready for. But that doesn't really describe the Buffy and Angel dynamic 
at all. We see Angel is the one that's actually putting the brakes on their relationship most of the time. He's even the one that asks Buffy if she's certain before they even have sex. And she's the one that initiates everything. Um, it's always, always Buffy's decision in setting the pace of their relationship. Also too, and I think this is kind of the biggest point, part of is when you're watching slowly in real time, so this is another quote, Angel's age seems closer to Buffy's and it's ambiguous in the early seasons how old Angel actually is. But if you're binging this show, he starts out sudden 17, then suddenly he's supposed to be 26. So people kind of turn around and then apply that lens back to seasons one and two. Another comment says, the age difference argument just never makes sense when we're talking about mortal slash immortal romances. Joss wanted Angel to be in the 18 to 20 year old range, but David Boreanaz just kind of looked too old by the time season two came around. At first, he was only supposed to be in the pilot. David Boreanaz was skinny and quite boyish at that point, and he could pass for a guy around 20. But by season one, there was no, at the end of season one, there was no way. So eventually the writers had to retcon the age at which Angel was turned. Big age gaps are suspicious at best in real life because we don't get to know the motives of the older person. In this case, we can watch them from the moment he met her forward. He's there for business and he initially falls in empathy with her, to quote a great live journal blog by Lettered. He fights his attraction to her at first. They have a similar level of emotional maturity and help each other go through very similar experiences to grow up. He never pressures her. If anything, she has to persuade him that it's worth it every step of the way because he's so convinced he doesn't deserve her. In her case, she has to grow up way too quickly. And I'm glad she had someone who could empathize so thoroughly in those early years. So here's the thing. I actually don't see this as creepy because I feel like we know enough of Angel's heart to be able to recognize that this is him seeing someone that he can relate with and care about. I don't see this as angel grooming her. I don't even see their relationship as creepy specifically because I know he was supposed to be a younger person initially when they cast him and stuff too. The thing that I think kind of makes the waters a little bit more murky is as we've talked about before, there's what's happening in the show on the surface level. And then there's the whole metaphor layered underneath it. And sometimes there is a metaphor for a girl dating an older guy kind of like relationship. We saw that in, um, Season one, I think it was when like they had the whole metaphor of like the older guy. I don't remember which episode it was. It might have been an angel. Um, and so there is that metaphor there for sure. But I don't think in like real time in the show that that's actually a thing. I'd like to say too, totally agree with you, Sarah. I think that the show uses metaphors to present different scenarios in real life, but that doesn't represent the couples in general. And like, I'm not going to. I can't sit here and give spoilery yes. stuff, but there's stuff that happens later on the show. It's not giving away anything, but they use metaphors and different relationships to represent what people go through in real life. But that doesn't necessarily reflect the actual relationship in the show. So I think that, yes, they used Angel slash Angelus and Buffy's relationship to reflect somebody who dates somebody and seems really sweet and does puts all this effort and then as soon as they get in like their pants, they kind of gaslight them and are awful and stalk them and blah, 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 blah. Angelus is like that. Angel is not. And so I think that they were really trying to show, especially in this episode, the clear cut contrast between Angel and Angelus because it's like there's that whole 
beginning scene with Angelus and he's like lurking and he's like stalking and observing Buffy in a predatory way. And then they're trying to show the opposite with Angel and I was about to say Angelus with Angel when he is like kind of like absorbing and or just understanding Buffy. Um, and I think it's hard too because this is the first time that we've really seen Angel be um extreme and not extreme, but seen it in this manner. And the only other time we've seen that him lurking With into her the house so young. Well, especially lurking into the yeah. house was in passion and he was again absorbing yeah. her pain. And in this one, I mentioned this in the spoiler section, we watched Passion. Um and this one, he's not absorbing her pain he's observing it and feeling for her and having empathy Mm -hmm. so there's there's a difference yeah it's just hard when we've only ever seen him lurking in a bad way this season and then you get thrown in the same episode where it's like the opposite so i can see how it can be confusing and or people wouldn't be okay with it you just have to see it in the lens of angel during that time it was not lust it was not Anything of that sort. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like him observing her through the window is a direct parallel to passion versus him reveling in her hurt and her pain and causing it in passion. This is him like empathizing and in just relating with her yeah. pain and, and just feeling for her. It's a huge, huge tonal difference. I'm, I'm trying to play like devil's advocate here too. Like I myself would have preferred if it was like him observing her and like – the graveyard with like um Merrick or whatever and then her having a phone call with her parents yeah. and or like or her mom showing up and being like what are you doing here like whatever i would have much preferred that i think that they're just really really trying to show the difference between angel and angelus um i just i would have preferred maybe it wasn't that but i don't think it is like the nail in the coffin to the show so yeah no i agree i think that I can see why it's perceived that way, even though I don't take it that way. And I think I would have wished that we wouldn't even have to be having this conversation, that it wasn't like filmed in such a way where it's like, okay, we have to actually address this because there's no way we'd ever even get that from this. But, you know, Buffy is perceived as very, very young. And so it just makes it creepier if you're just looking at it objectively. I hate like comparing this to other vampire stuff, but it's like, you guys, I haven't, I've only seen the first, um, uh, Twilight, but he literally watches her sleep in her room. So it's like, hmm. Yeah, right? Angel said that, but no one's saying that's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, they very clearly established, like, Angel would always ask if he could come in her room. He'd yeah. always ask, like, he was very respectful of boundaries, and it's a very clear contrast to Angelus. And so I think where things get muddled is people forget that Angelus and Angel are two different separate entities. And so just because Angelus is doing something that's not necessarily Angel, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Good talk. Good talk, everybody. All right, so in the graveyard, Buffy in a bright orange coat struggling to slay vampires. Angel watches from the shadows as she crawls on her hands and knees to grab her stake. She misses the heart. Merrick, and then Olin finally gets him. Merrick, you see you see your power. Um, and Buffy just looks like completely shocked. We see, again, from the perspective of Angel looking into Buffy's room as Joyce lectures her for being home so late, and we hear Hank's voice as they argue, and 
Buffy stands in her bathroom staring at herself in the mirror. We can hear her parents arguing about specifically like parenting her, which we know from nightmares that Buffy puts the weight of her parents' divorce on herself, that she absorbs that and thinks that she's responsible for that. So she's probably already been feeling that. And now she's going through this really, really like intense thing. She just found out she's a slayer, you know, like that's a lot for a girl to be going through. I just love that they show that slayer or not that Buffy is such a strong person. Like, just without all the, you know, magical strength, without the magical sling powers, like, she goes in, she's kind to her mom, even though she's had, like, the weight of the world just pushed on her, and she just, like, holds in her tears as she hears her parents, like, arguing. Like, she's just so strong. But also, like, how damaging is it to hear, rather than, like, your parents kind of having undertones of kind of blaming you it's like she hears them argue from the next room and she's the reason why they're arguing whether or not that's fair i think it's hard to because they don't know what's going on but it's like this is one scenario that we know of that she showed up late i don't think we don't know but it's like also she has to lie and say that she was with the boy it's like she has to sit there and be like they're arguing over something that like is not my fault um, and then, I mean, I'm sure there's so much happened after this that caused their divorce, but it's like, it's different than just kind of like, like underlying issues and her kind of feeling like she has like blamed herself. It's like she legitimately heard them arguing over her, which is a different type of trauma. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, Angel's face in this whole thing, I mean, you can see him going, oh, this is someone who, like, I can relate with, even though I am a vampire, I understand and recognize what she's going through. She's had something thrust upon her that she didn't ask for, that she didn't necessarily want. I did too. And now she has a choice with what she can do with that, just like I have a choice. And so, like, I believe, you know, he fell in love with her in this moment, but I think he also wanted to help her apart from like actually loving her too. Like I think just as a genuinely good person, this was him being like, all right, I want to do something. I want to be someone just as he says in the next scene, you know, Whistler, she's going to have it tough. That Slayer, she's just a kid, a world full of big, bad things. Angel, I want to help her. I want, I want to become someone. Whistler, oh geez, look at you. She must be prettier than the last Slayer, which the master said to her in nightmares, um, which I don't appreciate this comment necessarily because I feel like Whistler is like dumbing down Angel's whole and reason empathy. for helping Buffy because yeah. she's pretty. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, that doesn't necessarily help with the whole like conversation we just had. I would have preferred if it would have been like, hey, like, yeah, you saw – like I feel like it would have been much sweeter if Whistler had acknowledged that like there was something deeper there versus just external. But Also, he whatever. wasn't there. It doesn't matter. He can think what he – Want. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, this isn't going to be easy. The more you live in this world, the more you see how apart from it you really are. And this is dangerous work. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. This is the first time in all the flashbacks that we've seen Angel make an active choice to do something. He's been forced to do everything or things have happened without his control. This is the first major choice and decision that Angel makes for himself in his life. And I think that that is a huge, 
huge deal because it kind of gives us a glimpse into who Angel really is. Angel is someone that's good. Angel is someone that desires to do good. He's not just a passive observer. You know, I think that's just really important. So in the mansion, Angelus is continuing with the ritual. I have strayed. I have been lost. But a Cathlo redeems me. With this act, we will be free, which is really interesting wording coming from, you know, Angel saying he wants to become someone. He grabs the sword. The light glows, but he can't remove the sword. Instead, goes flying back. Someone wasn't worthy. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know who steals this um, scene, though, is... I quote this all the time. This is so <laughs> disappointing. I love She wrings her hands. <laughs> and Angelus realizes that he misses something, swears that they will have their Armageddon, that he must turn to an old friend. And then, okay, I think this is the most terrifying episode. Or no, okay. I think this is one of the most terrifying scenes of this, this episode. I can't say it is the most because I think there's several more. But... So Buffy's taking her final. Xander looks so stressed while he's taking the final. Did you guys look at him? He's like over there like rubbing his head and like I can't mean, stop honestly, fidgeting. I don't blame them. Finals are stressful enough when you're in high school. They honestly, are. if yeah. I was any of those kids, I literally would be so checked out. Like I wouldn't I would not pass a single final. I mean, I barely I don't think I passed a single final in high school anyways. But especially if I had apocalypse going through my head, I definitely wouldn't pass. <laughs> right? How do you focus? Like, that just takes a lot of mental strain. I wouldn't even try. Like, I wouldn't even study. I'd be like, no, I'm failing. Like, I'd be like, there's more important things. I'm probably not even going to make it out of high school anyway. Why try? So a hooded figure walks down the halls towards their classroom. Nobody stops her. Nobody's thinking this is weird. I don't know. Anyway, tonight at sundown at the graveyard, you will come to him. You will come to him or more will die. Tonight his hour is at hand. This is just Angelus all over it. The theatrics, the dramatics, like it's just Angelus. But what I want to know is what kind of bribe that Angelus had to bribe this vampire with to say, hey, go in there and kill yourself. Like, And she's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do with my life. Like, my whole life's purpose is to do this. I'm just curious. So then she throws off the blanket, steps in the sunlight, engulfs in flames as everyone runs in panic except for Buffy, who just sits there staring at her. Um, From the Watcher's Diaries, the stunt woman who was set on fire – for the immolationogram, as Buffy calls it. Her name is Cindy Fulkerson. She has been set on fire more times than any other stunt woman in Hollywood. That's kind of like her thing. She worked on the movie Clue, Poltergeist, and and Broken Arrow, which I thought was a fun little factoid. Could you imagine being known in Hollywood for being wa- for wanting to be set on fire? No, thank you. No, thank you. So the library, Kendra wants to go with Buffy, but Buffy insists on going alone, tells Kendra that she needs her to stay with the others just in case, which honestly, I think th- I think this was a smart plan, really. I think having Kendra stay in the library while Buffy goes was was really in- was really smart. She says, I can take care of myself. Willow plans to do the spell while Buffy fights Angelus, holding him off so he can't complete his own ritual. Cordelia had like a pretty good idea or pretty good like plan. I was like, I would do that where it's like, okay, let's, let's, um, do the spell and see if he like phones us, see if he turns into Angel. I think that's a good idea. Like, why, why separate yourself? I agree, but I also think that in Buffy's mind, this was the way of protecting everyone. And I think that she trusted Kendra to be able to protect them if an attack did happen. But I really think that Buffy wholeheartedly thought that this was going to be the fight 
against Angel. See, but yeah. like if you're going to separate everyone, go into someone's house where Angel's not invited in, like Xander's. Yes, right? Like, I don't understand why we did this. Go into a house where they can't come in. Why don't they all just go meet? Go in Giles' house. Why don't they all just like, meet? Like, well, Angel was invited into Giles' house. No, but they did the spell. Oh, that's and true. No one can go in the houses anymore. Even Buffy's. Yeah. Like, all these people yeah, I know, are right? not invited into anyone's house. Like, that would be a safe bet. If you're going to separate everyone, then might as well put them into a house. That's like the one thing that saves everyone from any sort of vampire attack. Yep, I agree. That was probably the biggest flaw of the episode for sure. Um, and I, But I also do kind of understand why Buffy didn't just do the ritual and see if he phones because she's thinking about – she's thinking about Jenny. She's thinking about Theresa because thanks to Xander – it's fresh on her mind because of that argument they had earlier in the day. So she's probably feeling guilty all over again. Then we have this really sweet moment between Kendra and Buffy in case the curse does not succeed. This is my lucky stake. I've killed many vampires with it. I call it Mr. Pointy. Dang it, Kendra, if you hadn't given up your stake, you probably wouldn't be dead. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't think that's what it is. But it's just so sad because it's like Kendra and Buffy actually had each other's backs. Like, and even yeah. when Kendra disagreed with Buffy in this episode, she was so kind and loving about it. Like, it just sucks. It's like, dang, Buffy can't have anything. And she respected her decision, too. <sighs> so then the graveyard next to the Alpert Mausoleum, they prepare to fight. Angela's hello, lover. I wasn't sure you'd come. Buffy, after your immolationogram, come on, I had to show. Shouldn't you be out destroying the world right now, pulling the sword out of Al Franken or whatever his name is? Angelus, I wanted to say goodbye first. You are the one thing in this dimension I will miss. Buffy, this is a beautiful moment we're having. Can we please fight? Angelus, I didn't come here to fight. I was hoping we could get back together. What do you think? Do we have a shot? Buffy looks so pained because you know she's thinking about Willow doing the curse right now. She's over there like, we might have a shot. In the library, Willow's sitting on the table beginning the spell as Giles chants out of a book and Cordy walks around with incense. Willow says, not dead, nor of the living. Spirits at the interim, I call. Graveyard Angel tosses Buffy as she whispers, come on, Willow. So much is writing on this. The literal end of the world, but also deep down, Buffy doesn't want to kill Angel. She's fully ready and still, like can if she needs to but now that the renewed hope of having angel back you could just tell for the first time she's like i know what i want i want angel to be back um in the library willow continues let him know the pain of humanity gods reach your wizened hands to me give me the sword kendra's pacing near the door when a vampire lands on xander through the window several more come through the door and windows giles immediately yells for willow and cordy to leave willow is crushed beneath a bookshelf okay that is heavy not only just the bookshelf but all the books on top of it like seriously intense but i also i want to give mad props to xander in this ep in the, yes. not, the not the whole yes. episode but in this scene he was <laughs> so brave he tried to protect willow he told cordelia to run and literally took on a whole vampire so that cordelia yep. could escape like mad props i mean we've talked about how brave he is mm -hmm. but still like yeah he he definitely showed that he cared for both cordelia and willow I think yeah, what's important about Xander's character is that he has a lot of human flaws and a lot of human emotions that dictate a lot of what he says. And he lacks emotional depth and or emotional intelligence. But 
when it comes down to it, he will be in the midst of the fight and won't back down and won't run away. And that is something to, that is very admirable and not human. And it's something I really appreciate about his character. Yeah. And someone mentioned like Xander is very passionate. And so that comes out in positive ways and negative ways. He's passionate about his friends and his family, but then he's also, you know, passionate about like, hey, Angel should die and stuff too. So I think the things that we love him for are also the things that annoy us too. Giles gets knocked out. Xander saves Cordy and then Kendra is taking on several vampires. This whole moment with Kendra. So, okay, it's one thing that they killed off, like, the one person of color in the show. But it's another thing that they didn't give her, like, any sort of, like, a big finish. Like, they could have taken this moment to show Kendra really showcasing her her moves or fighting her little heart out. And while Kendra does fight well, it doesn't feel like anything super spectacular. Like, it's just Kendra's fighting and then, boom, she's dead. Like, there was no – like, Kendra deserved at least a big finish and she didn't even get that. And it's just kind of a bummer. I will say I like the way that she dies, but I wish that she could have – they could have shown more fighting beforehand. Because, like – Yeah. She's kind of surrounded by, like, four vampires. But we saw Buffy fighting four vampires, like, at the beginning of the episode. Like, it was no big Mm -hmm. deal. So I wholeheartedly believe, like, Kendra could have fought them. And I wish she Oh, absolutely. I wish she could have. Also, um, I watched an interview with Juliet Lando a few months ago on the filming of this scene. And um, she said that they had to practice so much of the choreography, like, when she was, like – um, gonna kick and then her ducking and then grabbing her by the throat and like you know slicing her throat and stuff um, and she said they had it like really down because they had to have like good timing and then when they started taping one of the takes she said that she could see in um, uh, Bianca's eyes of her just kind of like being in the moment yeah. and she was like oh no yeah. and she kicked <laughs> too high and literally hit her in the head and she got a concussion from the scene and so she said that yeah. they, they kept in the take where she like in anger grabbed Bianca's neck and like thrusted her against like the wall and you could see her in her eyes yeah. being like girl what did she just do <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and she also talks about how like they had to put fake nails on uh-huh. her they kept popping because off. they didn't have time to put them in and they kept popping and flying <laughs> off everywhere as they were like doing the scenes yep. <laughs> so funny oh my gosh I love little things like that So back in the graveyard, Angela Snickers, you never learn, do you? This wasn't about you. This never was about you. Realization hits Buffy. She takes off, leaving Angela's laughing, and you fall for it every single time. So what Angelus is referring to is what the Anointed One and Absalom did in When She Was Bad. They kidnapped Cordelia, and then they lured Buffy away so they could kidnap Xander, Jenny, Willow, and Giles in the library while she was gone. And like – I think it was Passion the Nerd that talked about how it's so cruel that An- Angelus uses Angel's memories against Buffy repeatedly throughout the season. And this is just another example of that. Um, back in the library, Xander's knocked out and now it's just down to Kendra, who's holding her own quite well, but she's surrounded by like three or four vamps. The doors open and Drusilla enters. I think this is the first time oh, we've seen a my villain gosh. This inside is just- the library. This scene is equally amazing and just heartbreaking because, like, I remember the first time I watched this, I wholeheartedly believed that Kendra was going to make it out until Drusilla came in. Like, I really was like, yeah, Yeah, she's going to make it. Like, they're vampires. And then Drusilla came in and I was like, this is not normal. Like, Drusilla doesn't doesn't just 
come in and then nothing happens. Every single time Drizzle's yeah. there, you know something's happening. She's very calculated. She comes in and the music changes and you're like, oh gosh, like the whole aura in the room completely shifts. Drusilla's been a very passive character up until now. She's kind of just been the one that's been like, okay, here's this is going to happen. Go do this, all this other stuff. And then it's like to see her actually in action is quite terrifying, especially too because if you think about it in What's My Line, Kendra had Angel locked up. And if she hadn't have done that, then uh, Spike wouldn't have gotten him out and then Drusilla wouldn't have gotten back to full power. And ultimately, that whole like chain reaction, all of that stuff led to Drusilla coming to full power and then eventually killing Kendra. Like, it's just, it's really heartbreaking. And every time I watch this, my heart just kind of drops every time I see Kendra surrounded by all the vamps and Drusilla comes in. Because I just, like, I don't know, Kendra's death just hits me in a, in a way that not a lot of other deaths on the show do. I just, I feel like it was just, she never really had a chance. And then Drusilla, just like the whole clapping and the look in her eyes, like she knows she's in control. And it's just, it's, this episode is just masterful. We've been watching like Drusilla as this poor girl saying, I want to be good. I want to be pure, begging Angelus. And now to see like who she has become, like it's just, it's an incredible reminder of how, of what Angelus has done. Like Angelus created this. So Buffy continues to race towards the school. Drew doesn't even hit Kendra, just pushes her away, knocks away all her blows, finally grabbing her by the neck and cornering her against the desk. Look at me, dearie. She holds up her fingers, hypnotizing her. Be in my eyes. Be in me. Drew's fingers twitch. She slices Kendra's neck, not even bothering to taste her. This is so interesting. She doesn't taste her. She hypnotizes her. But... She also doesn't do it in vamp face. Like, remember when they had Angelus killing Jenny? They had him and they made the conscious decision to have him in vamp face. Drusilla does all of this while looking human. And I think that is an extremely intentional choice. I think it's like because everyone underestimates her and sees her innocence. So they're like, we're going to show her how evil she is even without vamp face. Because you need to like know that she's like a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and I think also, too, they don't really have to worry about the same thing that they do with Angel, whereas, like, if we ever want to bring Angel back, we can't, like, have him do these awful things in completely human face. With Drusilla, it's kind of like, she's already evil, like, it doesn't really matter. But I think it's also supposed to be a direct contrast to the Drusilla of earlier on in the season when she changed, you know? It's just, it's very interesting. Uh, so they just leave Kendra where she falls, take Giles. And I think it's interesting to note that Kendra's death is very similar to Buffy's in the first season in the sense that like both Buffy and Kendra were hypnotized. The master hypnotized Buffy. Um, and the master did bite Buffy, but he drank just enough for him to be able to get out and to come to full strength. He just kind of leaves her there. And we talked about how he was like, you're not worth me draining or killing completely. And I think the way Kendra is killed by Drusilla is very much the same vibes of like, ah, I killed you just for fun, just for pleasure. Yep. No, literally. And then Buffy runs in and Buffy and Angel's theme plays as a heartbeat. You can hear in the background goes, oh, it's just so sad because it's like, it's 
even more sad knowing that she's trying to run over there and save people. And then you hear Kendra just like, no matter what's going to happen, she's going to die. And so like at some point it stops before she enters the room. It's heartbreaking. Bottom line is, even if you see him coming, you're not ready for the big moments. No one asked for their life to change. Not really. But it does. afterwards that counts that's when you find out who you are My heart breaks every time I see Buffy just race to Kendra's side and just see Kendra. Like, because it's just, it hits different when, like, you know, we saw Buffy, we saw Buffy die at the end of the first season. And so, you know, Buffy's thinking about all that she went through and watching Kendra and going, man, that could have been me. And just like the bond and the sisterhood that her and Kendra had is just, it's a very poignant moment. It's very sad. And that's really, that's what this whole episode is. It's, you know, it's talking about like, you know, Angel, you're not helpless. You're not a puppet. It's what you do afterwards. Like we've seen that, you know, even after Angel got his soul, we saw him choosing to be a good man, choosing to do all the right things. And I think that's what this episode sets up so well is saying, hey, look, yes, Angelus has done or Angelus has done all these awful, horrible things, but there is a good man angel who has chosen to do the right things and he is someone worth saving. But at this point, the cost is so high. Is his? Is it worth saving him at the cost of potentially him turning back to Angelus or, you know, all this other stuff? And then the even bigger question is, what is Buffy going to choose? What is she going to do moving forward? Um, and like you said, that's when we're going to find out who Buffy is. Ooh. Dang, go us. <laughs> My back hurts when trying to take on the weight of this episode. <laughs> it's just a lot. It's so good. And mm-hmm. I'm like so excited to finish out the season and talk about part two. But mm-hmm. good job, everybody. I feel like this was – I feel like we talked about a lot of really interesting things. And I think that like we brought up some really interesting questions. And I'm like – I'm getting increasingly excited for the spoiler section because I'm really curious mm-hmm. to talk about other – with other people. and about. yeah. Yeah, and ask them like their opinions on stuff. But until then, you guys, you can message us. Um, you can message us on Instagram, Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can find us on Tumblr, or you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about Angel and Buffy's age gap. What do you think about the themes of this episode with free will? Um, your thoughts on Xander in that whole big fight. There's a lot of things to talk about here. We want to know your guys' thoughts. 
So with that, guys, we will see you next week for Becoming Part 2.